On this episode of the podcast, I have a fascinating conversation with Kimberly Watson-Smith. Kimberly has been the leading voice in debunking the Who Killed Joseph Smith movie, which purports the theory that John Taylor and Willard Richards killed Joseph and Hiram. We not only talk about that, but we also go into what the Doctrine of Christ movement is, as well as some fascinating prophetic parallels to the martyrdom of Joseph and Hiram Smith. And that's next on this episode of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Welcome back to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. As always, you can get a hold of me uh, either by email at mormonrenegade at gmail.com. You can also get a hold of me on uh, Instagram and Twitter and Getter under the handle Mormon Renegade. Also, we have a website up, and that's mormonrenegade.com. So go check that out. So today we've got a real special guest on. Um, Kimberly Smith has, has been gracious enough to come on the podcast and talk with us a little bit. And Kimberly's really kind of been at the forefront of um, debunking the, the movie by Justin Griffin, uh, Who Killed Joseph Smith? So, Kimberly, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you being here and making time for me and, and just fit me into your life. I know that times are busy and that sort of stuff, so I get it. But Thank real you quick, for having me on. Oh, no problem. So, real quick, Kimberly, um, what's kind of your Mormon cred, if you will, right? I mean, what, when, when, do you as, um, when do you first gain your testimony of, of the restored gospel? Um, that is a really good question. I, I kind of feel like I have, for me growing up, it was unique. And I realized that I'm, you know, as I've gotten older and have met other people, it's not as unique as I thought, but I, I grew up in a small town in Idaho. It was um, multi-generational members. So, you know, a town that was established by Mormon pioneers. And so the church was just, it was really prevalent in my area. And, and I actually grew up in a home that um, while both of my parents do come from pioneer ancestry, they were never active in the church. And so I pretty much went to church. I sought the church hmm. myself and went, and went to church myself at a very young age. And I, I actually like to say that I was born with a testimony because I have, was just always drawn to the church and to the gospel and I, and I learned early on that if I wanted to learn the gospel, I, I needed to go to church so someone could teach me to the, teach me the gospel because I wasn't taught it in my home. Um, but at the same time, I realized that that did offer me a unique experience where every, everything that I gained or everything I learned about the gospel and of the restoration had to come through like me searching it out. And so um, I, I feel like at the time growing up, that was, I felt like a, a curse and a cross to bear 
But as I've gotten older, I realized that that actually was a blessing in disguise because it helped me to go directly to the source for information, meaning the scriptures and the words of the prophet Joseph Smith. So I can say that I was converted to the gospel through the teachings of Joseph Smith. And that's really where I gained my testimony. That is so cool. So if you don't mind me asking, what town in Idaho? Montpelier, Idaho. Okay, right on. Now, I actually joined the LDS Church when I was, uh, and, and that was really my first encounters with Mormonism, when I was living um, in rural western Idaho. We were almost to the Oregon border. We were in a little town called, uh, called Parma is where I joined the church. So, um, you know, some things really resonated with me. And, and when you said, you know, you kind of felt like it was a cross to bear to, to go and search that stuff out because you had to do it on your own. I can identify with that because being a convert to Mormonism, very much the same way. I'm the only member on either side of my family, right? And so mm -hmm. I wasn't going to get that anywhere else. I had to dig. And I kind of can, can identify with you a little bit on that feeling of, man, this would be easier if there was someone at home I could talk to about this. Having said that, I look back now, and mm -hmm. I think that's why my testimony of Joseph Smith and his prophetic calling and and Brigham Young and on down is, is so strong because I had to go seek their words out. And in that seeking and, and having to go to original sources, it leaves an indelible mark. Absolutely. Yep. That was, that's been my experience as well. The, the other thing I think it did for me as well, Kimberly, is that when, so I joined uh, the LDS church in 1995 and when, you know, the internet was out there, don't get me wrong, but a lot of the anti-Mormon stuff hadn't really hit the internet yet. By going and digging out those original sources, I, I feel like I was kind of inoculated a little bit because a lot of, a lot of Mormons get a hold of the anti-stuff. And what it is, is it's little snippets of things that, you know, mm -hmm. pioneer prophets have said, and it's taken completely out of context. And so it rattles members to the core, Right. Right. I didn't have that because I had read a lot of that material in, in context. Um, I remember when I told um, my mother I was going to join the LDS church, the first thing she did was send, us, send me down to the, the parish priest in the little town I lived in, and he busted out the Journal of Discourses on me. So I took that back and, you know, talked to my elders, and I think I accidentally freaked them out as well. And finally, an old stake patriarch you ran me through it. But when, when all this information hits, it wasn't that big of a deal to me because I'd already been exposed to it. I knew what it was. And I could see that a lot of these things were taken out of context and just given little snippets. Right. So I can identify there a lot with your story. So it seems like you've been at the forefront of this, this whole thing with Justin Griffin and his hypothesis that uh, John Taylor and Willard Richards um, and if I'm not mistaken, under the, the direction of uh, Brigham Young, uh, killed Joseph Smith. How did you get involved in that? Okay, that's a really good question. And um, <laughs> it, it was by, I'm sure it was by divine intervention, but also by chance. And um, believe me, this is the last thing I wanted to take on, or the, it was the last thing I wanted to, to become involved in. So just a little bit more about my background. Um, I 
I do volunteer my time to the Joseph Smith Foundation. I don't know if you've heard of them. I have. Yeah. Great foundation. Hannah Stoddard. Uh huh. I go to some of the Book of Mormon evidence conferences, and I always look forward to any of their presentations. Right. So um, what I love about the Joseph Smith Foundation is that it is an organization focused on supporting and contributing to projects founded in the words of Jesus Christ. And I love their motto. Their motto is vision in light of the restoration. Joseph Smith taught truth that confirms the truths taught in the Bible. He taught that a restoration of the doctrine and church, the doctrine and church established and led by Jesus Christ was necessary in the latter days as it was in the former ages of the earth. Revelation was the rock foundation upon which to build. And so that that's kind of their vision. So everything they do is, is in order to, to either defend or to confirm the revelations and, and to make the history available to people. And, you know, to not be afraid of our history because there are real facts and real data and real evidence to back up every part of the restoration. And so that's what I just, I've just loved the Joseph Smith Foundation. I came in contact with them, I want to say in the, around 2013. And ever since then, I've just volunteered my time and my research to helping with various projects. And so leading up to how I got involved. So we, we do work with a lot of people that are going through faith crises. And again, because we understand that there are real answers to every faith crisis question. And so I want to say around, I think the, around 2020, we started getting more emails about people questioning if Joseph Smith really did practice polygamy. Mm. And then at first we, it was kind of, well, no one really believes that, right? Because I mean, every historian on the planet knows that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. The historical record is just, you know, filled with um, evidence of that. So, so we're just kind of, you know, put those to the side thinking this isn't, no one really believes that. And so, but then the emails just started pouring in and then it was, did Joseph Smith, did Brigham Young really kill Joseph Smith? And so I started investigating where this was coming from, right? Because we were just baffled at first, like, really, this is like a thing. And so I started investigating and I noticed on social media that there was a movement to convince others that number one, Joseph Smith never practiced polygamy and that polygamy originated with Brigham Young and he conspired to kill Joseph Smith with the other apostles to take over the church for power and polygamy. And this was also during a time during, you know, COVID when a lot of people were frustrated or confused about some of the policies that were coming out from the church. And so there, so these, so the doctrine of Christ movement had infiltrated all these LDS um, Facebook groups and they, anybody that expressed concern or doubt about the direction the church was going they basically reached out to them privately started recruiting them to their group that they had a facebook group the doctrine of christ under the guise of just discussing the doctrine of christ and then as you started getting deep into their their zoom meetings and their cottage meetings then you know they revealed 
hey, did you know? <laughs> and, and by then people were, you know, they were kind of just hooked by the, just what they're, you know, they were teaching the true doctrine of Christ. There was nothing wrong with that. But then it was, that was, under, that was the guys to get them, you know, I guess, gain their confidence. And then they sprung this new idea on them. And a lot of people just bought a hook, line and sinker. Cause a lot, I'm finding that this generation knows very little about our history. And that's very concerning to me. And so without that knowledge of history, anyone can come in and tell them what to believe. And they can even use sources taken out of context and, and convince them of whatever they want them to believe. And I was, I was finding that that was, that, that is what was happening. And so I just knew I needed to take that head on because, wow. right. Cause I, I, it was an attack on our history and it was attack on the names and characters of the prophets of the restoration. So I, I got a quick question for you because there's a couple things there that that really jumped out at me. What why why are we in this position as Mormons where our kids aren't familiar with our history? What do you think that's about? How how did that happen? That that's a good question. I I, I think that we we rely upon too much upon scholars to teach us. Right. Right. And, and so we, or we don't, we don't seek it out. I feel like as far as history, history goes, like I've spent a lot of time seeking out original sources and, and it's like anything else in the gospel. If, if you want to know truth, you have to go to original sources and, and some people just, they don't do that. And, and they do, they, they kind of rely upon the church or historians to tell them our, our church history. And, and unfortunately the, it, right. They can't, they can't tell everything, right. It's, it's a very narrow narrative of, of what we're, what we're learning. No, that makes, that makes sense. So let me ask you this. You, you said originally back in 2020, I think you said you were getting a lot of emails about, did Joseph Smith really pl practice plural marriage? Mm -hmm. Do you think that, that people didn't know about that for the same reason? We just left it to scholars to inform us that Joseph Smith did or didn't practice plural marriage or and, and when I first saw this start to happen, um, I was confused. Gen I mean, genuinely confused. I'm like, how do you not know that Joseph Smith practice plural marriage. I mean, it was out there. Um, so to me, that seemed a little more in your face than, than a lot of our other history that, that the kids didn't know. And I'm curious how it is we, we know that, that this generation never really made that connection, that this wasn't a Brigham Young invention, so to speak, being plural marriage. Right. That's a really good question. And so, like I said, for me, it was never you know, since I'm, I'm an active member of, you know, the, the church, um, mainstream church for me, it was never, and it didn't come as a surprise for me, because like I said, I was studying Joseph Smith. I was right at a young age. And so I found that my generation and those younger than me, they weren't aware just because it wasn't being taught at church. Right. And not because they're doing anything nefarious. It's just that, 
slowly that information wasn't getting passed down. Even we weren't passing it down as parents. I feel like once the church stopped practicing polygamy, then, you know, those faith traditions stopped being passed down from one generation to the next. So you, you come to my generation um, and younger, there, there was just no talk about it. Right. And so then there, and then this generation is finding out for the first time through anti-Mormon sources, Joseph Smith is a polygamist. And of course they make it sound, you know, they compare it to all of the bad examples of polygamy, like the Warren Jeffs, you know, and, um, and that's where they learn it for the first time. And so that does lead people to a faith crisis because they can't wrap their minds around the fact that there is, you know, there is the true order of our marriage. And then there is also, we have the counterfeit, mm-hmm. which, you know, there's many people that, that practice the counterfeit, like I'm talking about the Warren Jeffs and, sure, you know, sure. even, even people outside of Mormonism that, and so they have this tainted view of what polygamy is when they have never seen how or read the revelations they haven't read the stories of those who practice plural marriage and 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 so they they just hear of a narrative from the wrong sources no i think you're 100 percent correct i i uh i was an elders quorum president and this came up with a, a brother in the ward that i was attending at the time where where this was a concern and and we talked about it at length and it, he just kept saying, why didn't I know? Why didn't I know? Why didn't I know? That was the, the key thing that kept coming back. And I didn't have a good answer um, because in my Mormon experience, I'd always known. Right. And so I didn't have a good answer for it. And it's something that really perplexed me, but I think you, you, you answered that question beautifully in, in terms of how that is. It's because it is an uncomfortable question, Right. It can be for if if you haven't studied it out, and I think you're right. They they couch it in a very carnal way, right? A very a very fallen version of it. They being the, the you know some of the anti Mormon sources. So when when the, the the first contact happens, it's never in a good way, right? It's always tainted at some point. All right, so you start seeing this doctrine of Christ movement come up and it's such an innocuous sounding name, right? I mean, it's, you know, the doctrine of Christ who wouldn't love to, to hear more about the doctrine of Christ. Right. So do you ever attend any of their zoom meetings or cottage meetings or anything like that? Do you ever get like a front row seat to it? Right. Well, actually I kind of, that was part of my, see, I'm a researcher. So Uh (laughs) I, I do research. And so I was researching this out, like, who are they? Who's leading the movement? What do they believe? And so I, I joined their Facebook group, but I was just watching this was in the beginning. So I was just watching and learning their arguments and what are they teaching and what are they saying? And, you know, so it's, they're very crafty at what they do. Let's just, you know, it's again, like you said, they, they teach truth. They teach the doctrine of Christ from the Book of Mormon, and, but then they have a way of resting the scriptures, right? Mm-hmm. Anyone can rest the scriptures. And so um, as I'm just watching how like their theology and their beliefs were evolving, 
Um, I did start listening to some of their Zoom meetings. They, they had them recorded and, and on their website. And then you, you can join them every Monday night. They have a Zoom meeting where the scriptures are read and interpreted for them. And I listened to a few of those. And then I actually reached out to Phil Davis, who is the leader of the Doctrine of Christ group. And, and I just said, hey, I want to understand why so many people from your group are spreading the belief that Brigham Young is a false prophet and that he killed Joseph Smith. And so he agreed to a Zoom meeting. Um, he gave me his spiel, which it sounded like he was teaching from a script. And what it was, he was just explaining his experience where he claims that he had an angel appear to him in 2015 and um, bestowed upon him the Melchizedek priesthood through the hands of angels. And he tried to um, rest some of the scriptures and doctrine and covenants, which I was very familiar with already because I've been watching their group. And but I just let him, you know, give me his spiel. And then um, part of the spiel was the script was that Brigham Young took over the church for power and polygamy. Um, the church was rejected in Nauvoo for failure to build the Nauvoo temple, which we could go into that if you want. That's a whole conversation. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, and I was very well versed on the documents about plural marriage because we had just finished myself with Hannah Sauter and Hannah Stoddard and the Joseph Smith Foundation, we had just finished writing. Well, I did the research. She did the writing for um, the volume one of Joseph Smith's Pro Wives, and it was on Helen Mark Kimball. And so I was very well versed in all of the documents of Joseph Smith's Pro Wives. And so he's sitting there trying to tell me, right? And he doesn't know this, right, about me. And so he's trying to tell me that um, all the affidavits that were signed in the late 1800s were all written by the same person. And I was like, I've read the affidavits and, and they're not, and they don't, and he's trying to say they had the same handwriting and they, the women were coerced. And I'm like, there's no, there's actually no historical evidence of that. Like, don't you think if you coerced 40 women to sign affidavits that one of them would have written somewhere in a journal that they were coerced or they were told they had to write this affidavit. And so, um, yeah, he, he didn't know what he was getting into. I kind of feel bad looking back <laughs> because oh, I, I wouldn't feel bad. I, that's awesome. I wouldn't feel bad right? one bit. But like, just because I, and so once I started questioning him with, and I had actual sources and he started realizing that I knew what I was talking about. He quickly ended the meeting. Who, who, okay. So something else that jumped out at me there. Of those 40 women that signed affidavits, it's my understanding, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, not one of them had a bad thing to say about Joseph, even after he died. Nope. If you look at other movements that practice, you know, tyrannical, uh, 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 I don't know, tactics, if you will, let's just look at the FLDS, for example, right? Warren Jeffs. Granted, there were a lot of people that stood by him, but as soon as he was no longer a threat, right, when, once he's in jail, you have a ton of people willing to tell their story, a ton of women willing to tell their story. And he's just in jail, still exercising authority. 
Now, Joseph Smith is dead. So at any point, those women, I'm, I'm just guessing, would have felt safe in saying if, you know, hey, Joseph did X, Y, and Z, if that was the case, if he was, you know, that guy, right? So they could have came out against him there. Then Brigham, if you're afraid of Brigham, Brigham takes the Saints west, right? A lot of them stay behind. They could have signed off at any point saying, hey, this isn't correct. This is wrong. So good on you for knowing your sources enough to hit them with it. I'm interested in this meeting. At, at some point, were you able to get a bead on Phil Davis about did he really believe the things that he said, or do you think that he was more calculated than that, right? Do you think he knew he was lying? I, okay, this is just opinion. Okay. And, and this may be a little bit of a judgment, but because I have listened to him multiple times, like I said, I, you know, I randomly will log onto their zoom meetings because anyone can attend them. And so far they haven't never kicked me off. Maybe they don't realize it's me on there. Um, anyway, I, that's neither here nor there, but it's interesting. He sticks to a very script scripted dialogue. Okay. Like it, it never, and, and to me, that is very calculated. It never feels authentic. It always it, it's feels not like authentic. Like I've heard him tell his story probably half a dozen times now. And it's almost word for word, the same the same story and it feels scripted it feels calculated um and it, it's just i mean it's actually a very bizarre story if if you listen to his entire story i mean not only did an angel come to him and you know and, and i believe in angels and and i actually asked him if he tested the angel because i'm like well sure, joseph sure. smith specifically taught that we need to test angels did you test the angel and he kind of skirted around that question. So I'm like, okay, you haven't tested the angel, right? And, and then, um, so it wasn't just an angel appearing to him. It was then the idea that the heavens were unsealed for the first time since the death of Joseph Smith, meaning the heavens have been closed. Right. There was no Melchizedek priesthood on the earth after the death of Joseph Smith. He is helping to re-restore that it's being re-restored through him the melchizedek priesthood i mean i'm like wow this is the most elaborate story i've ever heard like and his experience is just really sensational um so he also claims that not only did he have angels restore the melchizedek priesthood to to him he had an out-of-body experience. He was taken by Jesus Christ to God, the father, where he was ordained by God himself, not Jesus Christ, God, the father. I mean, we don't even have that. Joseph Smith never even claimed that. Right. right. So I'm just in awe. Like, and then he also claims that he asked to be a witness of the atonement so Christ took him and he, he was able to see in third person, the atonement of Jesus Christ, but then his spirit entered Christ's body and he actually got to feel the pains of the atonement. And to me, that was the most blasphemous thing I'd ever heard in my life. Yeah, because that's the atonement's predicated on the fact 
especially the portion in the Garden of Gethsemane, that only Christ and Christ alone could withstand that. I, I agree with you. That oh, oh. well, not only that, it's it, that's called possession, and yeah. our no spirit is ever supposed to possess anybody's body, let alone Jesus Christ. So right there, I'm like, you're talking about demonic possession. You're talking about out of body experiences, which is astral projection, which is part of the occult. So I know right there that his experiences are false. Okay. And I know they're false too on another principle because Brigham or excuse me, Joseph Smith taught in the school of the prophets in around 1832, he said, no angel will ever come and ordain any man once because they have already ordained me and they will not interfere with the priesthood that has already been restored to this earth. Hmm. So yeah, he's, he's, He's definitely on shaky ground, <laughs> at least shaky ground. Um, who was Phil Davis before he started all this? Do we know what his, his profession was? Do we know what he was like before he started this, the, this movement? Um, what I know about Phil Davis, so he's 49. I think he's turning 50. He's never been married. He was, I think he owned a chocolate factory in Utah County. So if you Google Phil Davis chocolate factory, you can probably find information about him. I, I don't know if he still does that. Um, and that's actually his story is that the angel first appeared to him outside of his chocolate factory. Oh, and get this. I was going to say, I just immediately went to Willy Wonka. I don't know why. That's right. how, my, how my brain works. Okay, go, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, this is what I find interesting too, is that he said that the, when the angel first came to him, it was outside of his chocolate factory. He didn't know it was an angel at first. This man had just light coming out of his eyes, came up to him and said, do you have any money? And I'm like, okay, you don't see the irony, right? Like anyone who's been to the temple should know right there. That was a big, red, big red flag. So the angel literally says, do you have any money? I was like, okay, he's not, this guy's not getting it. Um, basically the angel's revealing to him who he is. Right. Right. In the most blatant of terms. Right. Right. And so I, yeah. Wow. So right from the get go, I was like, okay, this guy, you know, I kind of actually feel bad for him because I do think he is, he's deceived. He's been deceived by a false angel of light. And you just know that based on his fruits, right? Mm -hmm. And his story and his fruits without his narrative does not make sense unless he throws Brigham Young under the bus, unless he turns Brigham Young into the villain and, and John Taylor and Willie Richards into murderers with, without that belief, Phil Davis's narrative, it, it just falls, right? Because his narrative is that the church lost the Melchizedek priesthood at the death of Joseph Smith, that Brigham Young took over the church for power and polygamy, um, the 12 usurped the leadership of the church, and um, so the church no longer has priesthood, keys, anything. And, and the temple ordinances are all false, too. They don't believe in temple ordinances. And so the only way that you can get people in your movement to believe that to believe any of that 
or to believe that he now has Melchizedek priesthood is if you take out Brigham Young, right? Because Brigham Young is our priesthood link to Joseph Smith. Right. He's he's the he's the linchpin at which um, he's attacking. Right. He feels like if it's a train, if you will, that's carrying the rest of the cars. Right. And whether yeah. whether it's the LDS Church or one of the, the the fundamentalist lines, or I should say most of the fundamentalist lines, they all hinge on Brigham Young. So you pull that pin and you then have. A, you can take it wherever you want. Does that make sense? Right. And so and does, does Phil Davis at all, or the Doctrine of Christ movement, do they at all um, try to recast Joseph Smith in a different light than what sound historical uh, precedent shows us? Do they try to, to make Joseph Smith appear different? Oh, well, absolutely. Because what, what people don't realize also is if you take away Brigham Young, Brigham Young is essentially, he's the one that is carrying forth all of the revelations, right? He's, and he's the one that is, um, he's basically a testator to all of the teachings of Joseph Smith. So Brigham Young didn't teach anything that he didn't first learn from Joseph Smith. So you take out Brigham Young, you take out almost all of the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. And so the, they're Joseph Smith. They use Joseph Smith's name, but they do not know anything about Joseph Smith. They've rejected 90% of his teachings and his revelations, 90% of them, including temple ordinances, baptisms for the dead, just almost everything they've rejected. So they, they basically made a Joseph Smith in their own image and they claim to be um, followers and defenders of the, what they say is the real Joseph Smith. Thanks for answering that. And the reason I asked that question is this isn't a new pattern, right? It's new in the sense of it's in Mormondom now, but the pattern itself was very familiar to me. So my life is a series of inflection points. And I remember one of those inflection points was I, uh, me and a buddy, uh, probably, I don't know, almost 10 years after me and my wife were married, uh, back in about 2004, we decided we're going to see a football game. I'm a huge Packers fan. He was a huge Philadelphia Eagles fan. And we go to Philadelphia to watch this Monday night football game. And I go into, uh, we said, you know, we're going to leave a couple days early. We're going to see the sights. This will be great. And I go into Independence Hall. And when I set foot in Independence Hall, I get goosebumps thinking about it all over again. The spirit tells me something huge happened right here, right? Now, I've always been a history guy, not necessarily revolutionary period. To that point, it was more Western Civ. But all of a sudden, I'm like, wow, the spirit is so strong here. So I learned all I can about the founders. And as I watch my kids going to school, being taught history, they don't they are teaching a history of the founders that is vastly different than what actual history is. And mm -hmm. so what they did is, is they discredited the founders. And when you start to look at why they did that, why they discredited them there, there was a push starting clear back in the, the early 1900s, where there was a group of people who wanted to progress past the, the constitution and the founding documents. Mm 
And in order to do that, they had to discredit the founders first. And so when I first came upon this doctrine of Christ movement and started to see some of the things, it was a very familiar pattern. Take out the founders, so to speak, and then you can rewrite it however you want. Right. And, And it's a very familiar pattern. They're not taking out Joseph Smith like they did the founders, but they are taking out the, you know, the successors, Brigham Young and John Taylor, and they have recast Joseph Smith in a different light where he's not the same guy. It's, it's the same pattern. And, and I would dare to say it's, it's damn near demonic. I, I agree. I think it's very diabolical. And I, and I just want to add a few yeah. insights or points to that is, okay, you think of, of how, which teachings do we have of Jesus Christ that came directly from Jesus Christ? Directly, like he's talking from, from, the, the, from the hand of, of Jesus Christ. Kind Boy, of I, I would have to say that the closest thing that we would have would be the doctrine and covenants, right? Well, I meant I, I'm speaking of the of the New Testament. The New Testament. So it's kind of a trick question, but I've asked that to to people, and it, I think that when you understand this, we have the te- what, what do we know about the life of Jesus Christ? Because it was written by the apostles. The apostles, right? Yep. So you take out the apostles, what left do we have of Jesus Christ? Good point. That's a gr- excellent point. So, so the, that, that's the irony, right? Is that, Joe, like you said, whatever they don't like about Mormonism, they can blame on Brigham Young. They make him the villain. And then whatever they do like about Mormonism, they say, oh, yeah, they attribute it to Joseph Smith. So here's the thing is that, None of the teaching, the the vast majority of the teachings that we have of Joseph Smith, you know, is we, through the the Doctrine of Covenants, obviously, and, you know, because he's speaking, he's, he is the voice of Jesus Christ to this generation. Mm -hmm. But the vast majority of Joseph Smith's teaching has come to us through scribes, right? right? Those that heard him personally teach and then they went and they either wrote it in the history or they wrote it in their journals so you take out so if brigham young and all of the apostles are are all evil you you take away almost every teaching of the prophet joseph smith that's right because that's where that's where his teachings are coming from and I just have a quote here, actually a prophecy from Joseph Smith, if I can, right, right before, um, right before his death. So we know that the prophet Joseph Smith, he commanded that the records of the church to be kept, preserved, and accurately transmitted. In Nauvoo, he had six scribes who worked around the clock, um, burning candles until midnight to bring the history up to date. He also charged these scribes with the duty of updating the history after his death. Joseph Smith recorded, he said, quote, I told Phelps a dream that the history must go ahead before anything else. Then Joseph said, here, let me prophesy. The time will come when, if you neglect to do this thing, you will fall by the hands of unrighteous men. That's a close quote. Wow. 
So the history is actually very, it was very important to Joseph Smith and he had great anxiety about making sure the history was kept preserved and then, and then kept up to date. So he has put all of his confidence in Brigham Young, in Willard Richards, in William Clayton and others to preserve this history. So you take out Willard Richards now, right? Right. You take out the history. Um, so I just want to read this also this quote from Joseph Smith about Willard Richards. He said, um, I've been searching all my life to find a man after my own heart, whom I could trust with my business and all things. And I have found him. Dr. Willard Richards is the man. And that's found in journal history of the church, November 21st, 1841. So he had complete confidence in Willard Richards to keep the history of the church up to date. So another tactic that the Doctrine of Christ group uses is they say, look, Brigham Young revised the history of the church. He changed the history of the church. Well, if you look in the 1828 dictionary, what the word revise mean, it means to edit or to update. <laughs> so what they say revise, they're saying Brigham Young changed the history of the church to make him look like the victor. And so if we, we, we have to understand how important the history was to the prophet Joseph Smith and who he trusted with that history. And like he said, if they didn't do this, the saints would fall into the hands of unrighteous men. And I feel like that is being fulfilled today. If we do not study our history, we fall by the hands of unrighteous men who will come in and pervert and distort our history and, and basically interpret it according to however they want to interpret it and lead saints away from the truth. I, I couldn't agree more. I got another question. Why, why is it, do you think that the, the, this group went after the more conservative members of the LDS church or you know, the, the ones that, that seemed the most stalwart, right? Because to me, it, it, it's almost a paradox. And, and I'm wondering if you could shed some light on this for me. It seems like it would be counterintuitive because as I've looked at the doctrine of Christ movement and I've kind of studied what their teachings are, they're painting a picture of a very progressive Joseph Smith, right? Mm -hmm. And it makes like millennials today, I could see them really favoring this version, right? Because they're not fond of Brigham Young, right? They call him a racist. They call him, you know, a, um, uh, you know, a, a, what's the other word I was looking for? Oh, uh, you know, insulting to women. They, they paint him as um, just really a bad guy. Most folks who were from the conservative end of Mormonism, didn't have those problems with Brigham Young. So how is it that, that they go after the conservative members and find an audience there? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. That, that's kind of the phenomenon that I watched is that it, they were dividing the conservative movement, you know, those that were the freedom fighters that they were out protesting the masks and the vaccines. And so I think that they it was the perfect opportunity, almost like the perfect storm with when COVID happened and the church, you know, 
took a very strong stance in favor of masks and vaccines. And I think that those that didn't have a testimony of the restoration, that those conservative members that didn't have their own testimony um, were able to be, be deceived by the idea that, um, you know, they started planning into their minds that secret combinations have taken over the, the top leaders of the church. And then it was, oh, but did you know it started actually with Brigham Young? And so they just kind of fell for the conspiracy. So, so they, they kind of drew them out with, you know, with this division that was happening. And then in the process of being like the guys with open arms saying, come here, you're right. Let me give you a hug. Then they go ahead and they say, this started way earlier. And that's how they discredit Brigham Young. Right. So maybe, so maybe, maybe these are conservative members that have been using borrowed light for a while, right? Maybe right. they're the ones who just have relied on the testimony of their parents or grandparents about the, the early pioneer prophets of, of Mormondom, so to speak. Is that a fair assessment? I think so. And I mean, Heber C. Kimball actually did prophesy that that was going to happen. He said the time will come when you can no longer stand on borrowed light. And he right. said, a test, a test is coming. And I feel like this, this is a fulfillment of prophecy that for too long, we've relied upon borrowed light, the testimony of our fathers. Um, we didn't, we weren't seeking out, you know, the truth. We weren't seeking out our own, his, our own history. Like I absolutely love our history. I, I, we have nothing to be ashamed of in our history. It is mm -mm. filled with stories of faith, courage, sacrifice, the lives of even, I would even venture to say that you would not have a problem with the idea of plural marriage. If you just studied the women, like I said, we just finished the book on Helen Mark Kimball. Most people don't know. She was the 14 year old girl, right. That was married to Joseph Smith. Most people will talk about Joseph Smith and the 14 year old without ever knowing her name. And they, they, then they paint her as a victim. Well, Helen Mark Kimball, she was the most ardent defender of plural marriage. She wrote two pamphlets, um, why we practice plural marriage and what Joseph Smith taught about plural marriage. She, um, not only that, she married Horace Whitney and actually encouraged him to take on more wives because she had such a testimony of the principle and that didn't come to her without sacrifice. She actually fasted for seven days before she gained her witness of celestial marriage and agreed to be sealed to the prophet when she was just 14, 15. Um, that marriage was never consummated. And so most people don't even know that aspect. And so they just, it's easy for someone like Phil Davis or Justin Griffin to come along and say, the Joseph Smith I know wasn't a pedophile, right? He wasn't, he never married a 14 year old girl because that would make him a pedophile. Will they leave out who she was, who was the 14 year old? And the fact that the marriage was never consummated, that doesn't make Joseph Smith a pedophile. It means that he was, he entered into the higher order of celestial marriage. He was sealed to Helen Mark Kimball. And um, so their families will be united for eternity. Um, so they, they completely just discount her own testimony. And, and I just say, read the testimonies of the women, read their lives. They are the second half of the restoration. And, and not only will you 
you gain a testimony of, of their character, but of the truths that they stood by. No, I, I couldn't agree more. I want to say, I want to say this, right? There's no reason on this earth at this point that a 14 year old should ever get married. Having said that, it's a different world in the early to mid 1800s, right? And so historical context matters. And you exactly. gave a you gave a fantastic account of historical context, right? So let's just look at Helen Mark Kimball as an example. This is somebody who even what we would consider a young age today, um, fast for seven days. Look, there's not a lot of kids today at that age who are fasting for seven days to get an answer about things, right? Mm-hmm. So, so they were growing up faster in those days. The other thing was, again, the, the, the marriage was never consummated. So y- you look at all of that, right? And you look at the to- totality of history and you're, you're stretching to call, let me rephrase that. You're not stretching. You are lying if you know the, the, the context that Joseph Smith was a, was a pedophile. It doesn't hold water. Exactly. Yep. So, so today, as it functions now, what would you say is the main doctrinal thrust of the doctrine of, of Christ movement? What, what are they doing now? I mean, how are they different than, than, than your run-of-the-mill LDS member, your you know, Brighamite fundamentalist? What, what's different there other than they've taken out Brigham? Um, well, they're well, they're very different. And I mean, this is a growing movement. I am just astonished. It's still growing. Oh yeah. It probably, I know they have for sure, at least 900 active members, but 2000, uh, 2000 believing members, meaning they believe their narrative about Brigham Young, that Joseph Smith never practiced before marriage. Um, they've denounced like I said, temple ordinances, they no longer wear the temple garment. I would say the main, but their main, I think the most concerning teaching for me is that they are teaching the doctrine of reincarnation. Mm-hmm. Um, they believe, Phil Davis believes that he is Lyman White reincarnated and that Joseph Smith has returned to the earth, reincarnated, meaning he was born again in a different body, um, that he's been awakened to who he, his past life was. So Phil Davis is working through this reincarnated Joseph Smith to establish a terrestrial order of the church and that they have the Melchizedek priesthood that nobody else on earth has. Oh, wow. Yep. Oh, geez. Okay. So when does Justin Griffin come on the scene then with the doctrine of Christ? So from my understanding, so Joseph, Justin Griffin was an admin of the doctrine of Christ, just Facebook group. And, and, um, you know, he tried to, he tries to separate his movie from the doctrine of Christ movement, but you can't separate them because like I said, the doctrine of Christ movement is based on the idea that Brigham Young is not the rightful successor and doesn't have keys and doesn't have authority. And actually Justin Griffin before who killed Joseph Smith, 
he actually helped to release and produce um, Phil Davis's movie, The Return of Joseph Smith, where um, it's on YouTube. You can find it. It's like 30 minutes long. It's called The Return of Joseph Smith. So Phil Dave, Justin Griffin helped Phil Davis to, um, I don't know if he helped them to produce it, but they did show it in a theater. They had an invited audience. Um, Justin Griffin is on their, um, what is it called? Their, the movie, the movie. Um, Who killed tape. Joseph Smith? Yeah. And so it's basically, no, on the return of Joseph Smith. Oh, I haven't seen that one. With Phil Davis. So he helped Phil Davis release this movie where he goes through basically his narrative of, of how the church lost the priesthood, that the, the Jesus Christ removed the name from the church, that, um, you know, the Brigham Young is an imposter, usurped the authority. Um, that's what it was about. So before Justin Griffin was involved in Who Killed Joseph Smith, he was involved in that. So you can't separate him, even though he tries really hard. Um, not to associate his movie with the doctrine of Christ movement. They're one and the same <laughs> is what I'm saying. So right. even at the, even at the movie premiere, it premiered um, January 13th, 2020, 2022. And someone attended and they did report back to me and said that Justin Griffin at the premiere. So they, they showed this movie, they at, in a theater, they rented a theater. Um, you had to buy a ticket. Then they held a, Q and a after he said that Justin Griffin was mocking the temple garment. Um, they, they were accusing Brigham young of being a false prophet and a mastermind behind Joseph Smith and Hiram's murder and whose motive they claimed was wealth, power, and women. And that all this would come out in the sequel in the who could Joseph Smith part two. So they are planning a part two and this was at the premiere. So this is what they were alleging at the premiere. Um, and they declared that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was the mother of harlots spoken of in scripture. And that the keys and the priesthood and, and the power and authority never traveled west of the Mississippi. So. Wow. Once again, you can't, he tries hard to separate himself. Like this movie had nothing to do with that, that movement. And he just wanted to find out the truth about Carthage. That, that's what he alleges. But. Jeez, I, I think he's being very dishonest and misleading when he claims that he's he just wants the truth. I, I don't think he wants the truth. I think that he's pushing a narrative and he's using the power of media, right? Mm -hmm. And sensationalism to entrap people into this narrative. And, and again, who are drawn to it? Those that don't know our history. Right. I haven't studied Brigham Young, haven't studied the revelations. Those are the people that are easily deceived, duped, whatever you want to call it with this narrative. I agree. I agree 110% with you. I, I still look, you know, keep tabs on Mormon Twitter, if you will. Right. I just look and I live just up the hill from Brigham Young University. And it's just not this. It's, it's, it seems like every, almost every bit of our history is under attack, right? It doesn't matter what it is. I just finished a podcast last night where um, we were, we, I felt like we did a good job 
of showing the difference between the united order and law of consecration and communism and socialism because i see a lot of tweets and a lot of kids coming out now saying really this is just socialism with a religious bent right mm -hmm. it's horrifying it's a horror show and i'm like no 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 that's different and i think this this is just one more example like you were saying of maybe adults and kids who don't have a good handle on what our history is and how easy it is for them to be given a different narrative, especially if it fits within the context today of wokeism, progressivism, and the whole thing. We saw progressivism come for our, our you know, the, the founding fathers and our founding documents, and now they're coming for Mormonism. It, it's in their, in their crosshairs. And I'm not saying that they're working together. I'm just saying that the adversary is very good about drawing together his armies to go do this. Right. So, well, it, it, this may be of interest to your, to your listeners. I don't know. So, um, one of the books that the Joseph Smith foundation wrote, actually it was a, it was a two-part series. It's called faith crisis. And they actually go through and show how there was a, an intentional progressive rewriting of our history. And that's, what's coming out of BYU is this pro new progressive Mormon history. That was, it's basically, you know, the scholars who, who don't really also have a strong faith in our foundation uh, of the church. And they've, they've rewritten our history from pretty much a progressive angle. And so it, it's just fascinating when you, when you read what, what happened and, um, and, and just understanding that this was an intentional effort to rewrite our history so that they could change the doctrine. Um, Leonard Arrington was, uh, you know, the historian in the mid 1900s. Mm -hmm. And um, he, that's one of his quotes is if we can change the history, we can change the doctrine. Oh. And they wanted to get rid of a lot of, a lot of the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith that, you know, they want to change some of the doctrine or covenants. They want to get rid of section 132. They want to get rid of, um, you know, the patriarchal order and, and all of those things. And so they knew they could do it by rewriting our history. And so faith crisis one and two, it's just, they're phenomenal books. They actually, it was based on Leonard Arrington's own diaries and writings and what he revealed in those diaries about what he was doing and why and how they were going to train up the next generation of scholars and historians with this progressive new Mormon history. And so, um, you know, it, it's really affected a lot of, of members coming out of BYU who are being taught this new Mormon history. They're being taught this progressive scholarship, but it's also affecting, you know, every branch of Mormonism. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I would say that Richard Bushman, he's one of the most prolific progressive historians of our time who wrote the book, rough stone rolling. Yep. That completely, um, he completely re remakes Joseph Smith into an occultic treasure, treasure seeker, um, lazy, um, basically a bumbling idiot. <laughs> but it, when you understand where those sources and are coming from and the purpose for rewriting the history then you just throw it out and you know this is not the joseph smith that's in the scriptures this is not the joseph smith that has been prophesied in scriptures this is not the joseph smith that 
all of his closest friends and associates testified of his name and his character. It, it's just a completely rewritten history. So I, I just wanted people to be aware of that and that I do encourage people to read, go to josephsmithfoundation.org, you know, get their books, the faith crisis books, and, and just arm yourself with that knowledge and information about what's happening to our history. So that when you you're confronted with these ideas, these progressive ideas about history, that you can, you can combat them and, and you can, you help your children to see the attacks on our history. I, uh, I read those books and Hannah did a great job. I mean, and solid, documented, solid. Um, I don't see how you can't read those books and walk away and 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 not know exactly what's going on now. And and the scary part is, is it's one thing to read about it academically. It's another thing when you see it, right? It's another thing when you're like, oh crap, they're making they're making actual headway, right? It's not like this was just something that was thought of. They they put these plans into practice. Right. And so, and how that ties into the, this doctrine of Christ movement is because I feel like that they then, um, they, they could take advantage of that, right? They can say, look, the church has changed history. So we can't believe what the church says. We can't believe our history. Right. And so they, they've taken advantage of that. And, and sadly, again, people that, that are unversed in, in original sources that haven't taken the time to study study those they they have fallen prey and and it's very unfortunate well and i think that's why the work that you're doing and that hannah's doing uh with the the joseph smith foundation is so vital because it's really leading the charge against this right it's really really coming out strong against it so Next, we, we talked about maybe going over some of the critical events leading up to Carthage. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good place to go next because we've, we've kind of diagnosed what the problem is, right? With, right. with you know, the Doctrine of Christ movement, with Justin Griffin, with, with Phil Davis, and, and the progressive rewrite of Mormon history. So now I think it, 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 this would be a good time where, where we talk about what actually happened and, and those times leading up to Carthage. Okay. So I, this won't be, this won't be comprehensive, right? Cause we don't have sure. 10, hour, 10 hours. I mean, sure. there, there's so, so leading everything about the martyrdom. If we really wanted to understand the martyrdom, we'd have to actually go back to Kirtland or I'm not going to do that. Obviously there's not enough time. I, I do want to just highlight some main points that I think if people just understood these points about the events leading up to martyrdom, um, what happened, then you understand what happened at Carthage and then even the events after, including the trial. I just think that this, those facts alone just blows Justin Griffin's theory out of the water. Okay. It puts the nail in the coffin. And what's interesting is that Justin Griffin is on record saying he doesn't know very much about what happened before and what, what happened after. So he is not giving his viewers his audience a complete picture of Carthage he's only taking you know this conspiracy inside of Carthage jail and presenting that as 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 factual and so we have to understand that history cannot be taken out of context and I almost want to compare it to a puzzle right you you can 
as you're putting a puzzle together, you kind of think you see the picture of, of how it's going to end up. But then, you know, if you only have a few pieces, but as you start to put all the pieces together, the picture completely changes, right? So we have to understand what happened before, what happened during, what happened after. So um, that's just a brief segue. And I just want to go over a few, a few points. So number one, we have to understand, I think this is critical. We have to know that the prophet Joseph Smith prophesied of his death. And not only did he prophesy of his, of his upcoming death, but he said that he could not die until he fully established the kingdom of God on earth. Um, he said in August, 1842, Joseph Smith said, my feelings at the present time are that inasmuch as the Lord almighty has preserved me until today, he will continue to preserve me by the united faith and prayers of the saints until I have fully accomplished my mission in this life. And so firmly established the dispensation of the fullness of the priesthood in the last days that all the powers of earth and hell can never prevail against it. And that's in the history of the church, volume five, pages 139 through 140. And why that's so critical to understand is because that is part of the doctrine of Christ's narrative is that Joseph Smith died prematurely before everything was established. Therefore, we need a return of Joseph Smith through Phil Davis to establish what he couldn't do. That is, that is such an important point because what I'm finding with, and, and, and I need to qualify this, right? What I'm finding with a lot of groups like the doctrine of Christ or the progressive end of, of Mormonism is that they're like, no, no, no. The, 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 the restoration is ongoing. And in a sense, they're correct, right? They're, if, if we're in Mormonism, we should expect fresh revelation, right? right? But it shouldn't contradict what has come already. Exactly. And, and the authority part is very key to understanding all of this. And so if, if, if these groups can paint the picture of, hey, the, the, the restoration was incomplete, so to speak, again, you now have a blank slate in which you can draw anything on it you want. Exactly. And that's what they're doing. And so, you know, we have to have by the mouth of two or three witnesses. So he's that, that first quote was in 1842 in October, 1843. So a year later, he's the prophet Joseph Smith said again, I defy all the world to destroy the work of God. And I prophesy they will never have power to kill me till my work is accomplished. And I'm ready to die history of the church volume six, page 58. And that was from a discourse given by Joseph Smith on October 15th, 1843 in Nauvoo, Illinois. So, right, Joseph Smith, he's saying when it, his work has, until his work's complete, they will never have power to kill him. And I, I feel like that is even a parallel to Jesus Christ. Yeah. They did not have the power to kill Jesus Christ until Jesus Christ said it is finished. So wow. servants typify Jesus Christ. And I feel like his, his mission and his life and his death is a type and shadow of Jesus Christ. It, it's a testimony of Jesus Christ, even his death. Um, okay, so just moving on. And, and, and so we know that, you know, it, 
anybody that knows anything about the church, right? We, we know that Nauvoo is, it's one of the most prosperous cities in Illinois. It's bigger than Chicago at one point. Right. It was the, but it was, it was the biggest and the most prosperous. And so you have people coming to Nauvoo with ill intent, right? They want to capitalize on this prosperity. They're, they are trying to, um, you know, you have bootleggers, all these different villains that come to Nauvoo wanting basically a piece of the pie. (laughs) without being a member of the church they they want their prosperity they want their wealth and so you have so there were just enemies among the saints there were people that would join the church just so they would have an influence um so um anyway so we we know we have all this going on you it, it it's just important again to get the overall picture of what joseph smith was up against Right. So not only that, we have Joseph Smith, who is who is um, and then he's running for president. So there is this threat. Right. Oh, Joseph Smith is he's the mayor of Nauvoo. He's the leader of the of the Nauvoo Legion. Now he wants to be president. And, and, you know, he's he's taking our political power. So we already know that the you know, the powers that be the government is concerned about Joseph Smith's influence, not just religiously, but mostly politically. And of course, then you have the religious leaders that are then saying, oh, but, you know, he has religious power too. So Joseph Smith is a threat to multiple different people, not just um, the apostates. So not only that, you have the apostates, you have the government that's against them, and then you have religious leaders, and they all want Joseph Smith dead, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I would say this resembles very much, there's echoes of Christ's life here, right? Because if you look at what, right. what's happening with Jesus in his time, pardon the expression, he's pissing everybody off, right? It's not just the Pharisees, it's not just the Sadducees, but it's Rome as well, right? I mean, he's not making a ton of friends, and you get the feeling that in the Nauvoo period, Joseph Smith is in the very same boat. Nobody likes him, right? Except those who are following following his teachings right so so this is important just leading up to to kind of like the crisis moment right Uh, in Nauvoo so not only that is you have him introducing secret doctrines right private doctrines right the council of 50 um and and where he is actually in in Nauvoo he's crowned king of Israel Mm -hmm. and so this is really where William Law starts to turn on Joseph Smith. Not only does he um, completely, what is the word? He, he hates polygamy, William Law. Um, but then he is, he's up in arms about the fact that Joseph Smith has now just been crowned king of Israel. I don't know if you, you're aware of that. Actually, yeah. In fact, just last night, part of the podcast we did last night was the Council of 50. So, yeah, this is this is great. This t- <laughs> right, like it's and, tying and, right in, right. And so again, it, we see a parallel with the life of Christ. Right, he comes and he declares himself the King of Jews, and then you know he's going to take over the the political structure in Jerusalem. But then you know he's also the you know as as a king. And so so the, William Law is looking at this and he's like, okay, and he writes in his journal about Joseph Smith and his secret doctrines, and he. 
So he's basically just angry at Joseph Smith. And, and I think polygamy was the last straw when he was, he was introduced to polygamy by Hiram Smith in um, a head council meeting in Nauvoo. And so you have William Law who obviously turns apostate, right? I mean, we, we all know William, everyone knows the story of William Law. He turns apostate and, um, but I don't know if everyone's aware of um, the blood oath and um, the, the secret meeting of conspiracy. No, tell us about that. And so there are, I, I just think that there are these two unsung heroes of, of this Nauvoo period. And there are two young men named Dennison L. Harris and Robert Scott. And they are um, in the spring of 1844, Joseph Smith was alerted by these two young men of the secret movement to take both the life and the lives of the life of Joseph Smith and the lives of several other leading men in the church, including Hiram Smith. Um, they had been personally invited to the secret meetings by these conspirators. So they're just young kids. I can't remember their ages. I want to say 15 and 16. Okay. And so they, they, they go to Joseph Smith and they said, Hey, we've been invited to this meeting, these secret meetings. And Joseph Smith said, well, I want you to attend. And so, and he tells them, you know, you, you, you're risking your life by doing this, but I want you to attend. Hmm. And so, um, they knew that they would be risking their lives. And so they attended three of these meetings as, as spies. And so each time they would bring back to Joseph Smith, a report of what they had witnessed. And then at the last meeting, they um, recounted the requirement that everyone present at the meeting had to take a blood oath to be willing to take the life of the prophet Joseph Smith. And so um, because they were at this meeting, you know, Joseph, they could go back to Joseph Smith and said, but everybody there is required to take this blood oath. And Joseph Smith said, you know, if you, if you don't attend the meeting, the next meeting, you know, it's going to alert to something suspicious. So you need to go, but just don't take the oath. And so again, they're risking their life, uh, their lives. And so they go to this meeting where the, where they witnessed these blood oaths being taken. Mm -hmm. And then when the time comes for them to dig the blood off, they, they basically refuse and they're, they were taken down to the cellar to be shot oh. and, and probably by, you know, divine intervention. One of the men says, says, well, if we kill him, then, you know, their fathers will come looking for him and then we'll be found out. So we need to let him go. But they basically took them out by the banks of the, of the Mississippi River and said, we're going to let you go. But if you tell anybody, we'll kill you and your family. And Joseph Smith was actually hiding in the banks of this Mississippi River and heard everything. Wow. And, and he was in tears knowing that, you know, that these young men, they risked their lives for him. And, um, and so later they sign affidavits and affidavits about the names of these, the leaders in this plot. And they were Chauncey L. Higby, Artie Foster, Joseph H. Jackson, and William and Wilson Law. Whew. So, um, and, and I bring that up because for two, for a number of reasons is first, we have, a, we have the conspiracy of who the conspirators were, right? We know that it's soundly documented in our history. We have witnesses. 
if Brigham Young, John Taylor, and Willard Richards were part of a conspiracy, where is the evidence? Yeah. Why, why don't we have any account from anybody ever saying anything? Yeah, it, it blows my mind. And, and how, yeah, I, I just go to, if, if, if this was Brigham, he'd have done something to make sure that he steps forward as being more prominent than Joseph. And he never does. And if I'm not mistaken, on Brigham's deathbed, his final words is Joseph repeated three times, right? Mm -hmm. You wouldn't get the quote, you know, I feel like shouting hallelujah every time I stop to think and remember that I knew Joseph Smith. Exactly. On the other hand, we have this documented. These two young men who risked everything, we have their sworn affidavits. And we know William Law apostatized, right? That that's not there's there's nothing there to to suggest otherwise. It it just it it it's maddening when you look at the preponderance of evidence, and yet there are still folks that that fall for the for this. I'm right. sorry. Yeah, and so it, it to me that's just I mean if if we're thinking about this rationally and logically, right? It, again, we we have evidence of who the conspirators were. There's no, so Brigham Young essentially would have had to fool a lot of people and there's no record anywhere of him saying anything anywhere or no one even alleging that he said anything about killing. Right. And if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, Brigham's overseas, right? So if he has to give an order, it's going to have to come by letter and maybe even tell i'm not sure telegraph even existed then i'm not sure i'm not going to say right. that but there'd have been documentation somewhere because he would right. have had to have written the order right and and then i would just I, I know we all know about the nauvoo expositor there you know the he william the william law wrote the nauvoo expositor well, there's only one publication before it was destroyed i think that in itself is a pretty good source um, if you, if you haven't taken the chance to read what he wrote in the Nauvoo Expositor, I encourage your listeners to do so because it's pretty telling about, you know, what William Law, what he was accusing Joseph Smith of. And again, he was accusing himself of, of polygamy. So right there is proof that he was practicing polygamy because William Law was charging him with polygamy. And then he was charging him with claiming to be the king of Israel and a God to this generation. So again, tying that back into why was Joseph Smith, what, what was the conspiracy against Joseph Smith? It was because the same reasons that Jesus Christ was crucified, was threatening the political and the religious structure of the day. Wow. And so I think that's just an important source. Um, and then we know that Joseph Smith orders the destruction of the Nauvoo Expositor, right? Which incites the mob. And I did want to read um, also a prophecy that Joseph Smith gave of, of why he ordered the um, destruction of the Nauvoo Expositor. And I think this is important. And I, and I, and I do want to read this because I have actually read the modern interpretation of the reason why Joseph Smith 
basically saying if Joseph Smith hadn't ordered the, the destruction of the Nauvoo expositor, then he never would have died. So they kind of blame Joseph Smith for his own death. But actually, Joseph Smith was actually trying to save the lives of the saints when he ordered the destruction of the Nauvoo expositor because George Lobb, he reported in his journal that Joseph called a meeting at his own house and told us that God showed to him in an open vision in daylight that if he did not destroy that printing press, that it would cause the blood of the saints to flow in the streets. And by this was that evil destroyed. And speaking of those who returned to report that they had destroyed the press and other materials as ordered by the city council, Joseph Smith recorded, I told them they had done right and not a hair of their heads would be hurt for it. Hmm. In, which, which, again, he's seen his followers, right? He's seen the early members already shed blood. Hans Mill, all the stuff that happens in Missouri, the persecutions. And this time, there, you get the sense that this is different in Nauvoo now, right? Right. And so, no, that, that makes sense on why he would have done that. Right. And so... Right again. So it's another, you know, Joseph Smith, his death, it just, when I think of um, Justin Griffin's movie and what really angers me most about it is I just feel like it it makes a mockery of Joseph Smith's death. And so um, understanding that Joseph Smith was actually trying to save the life of his saints. This is, you know, this is who he was. This is his character. And so um, with that, the destruction of the Nauvoo, um, expositor obviously incited the mobs to violence. As we know, um, William Law then worked with Thomas Sharp, and then they published stuff in the Warsaw Single Signal against the Saints, which also incited not only the not only mobs in in Illinois, but now it's incited the mobs in in Missouri that were that still had revenge in their hearts against right. the Saints. And so um, Thomas Sharp, the editor of the Warsaw Signal, wrote, we hold ourselves at at all times in readiness to cooperate with our fellow citizens to exterminate, utterly exterminate the wicked and abominable Mormon leaders. He even called for an attack on Avu, declaring, strike them, for the time has fully come. True. So, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, so after that, um, Joseph Smith, he declares martial law and he called on the Nauvoo Legion to protect the city. And then while he was preparing to defend the city of Nauvoo, the prophet received a letter from the governor for charging the city council and the mayor with gross misuse of their civil powers. After reading the governor's letter, Joseph stated that there was no mercy here. Venting his feelings further, the prophet said, I told Stephen Markham that if I had, if I and Hiram were ever taken again, we would be massacred, or I was not a prophet of God. I want Hiram to avenge my blood, but he's determined not to leave me. So right there, he's prophesying of his death. He knows it's he knows it's coming. Right. So he not only that, he's saying if if I'm not massacred, then I'm not a prophet of God. And who's he prophesying is going to martyr him? He's probably he's telling us. The mobs are going to kill me. The state of Illinois is going to kill me. Right. And then he says, if not, I'm not a prophet of God. 
So even there, the movie Who Killed Joseph Smith is calling into question Joseph Smith's prophetic mission and his prophetic ability. Yeah, that's a great point, Kimberly. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you this. In this time leading up where, where Joseph feels like, you know, the, my time's coming, uh, it's short. Is he doing anything to prepare the apostles that are there to kind of get them ready to, to carry the work forward? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, on just a second. <laughs> um, okay, so um, well, we know that um, if you study the life of Jesus Christ, right, what mm-hmm. was he doing to prepare his apostles in the, Oh, go right? ahead. Sorry. I was about to cut you off. I didn't want to do that. Okay. You, if you had something to say, go ahead. I was going to say he was, he was preparing his apostles. Right. And, mm-hmm. and you can see he's been doing it his whole ministry, right? He tells Peter, this is the, you're the rock upon which I'll build my church. He, and, and in those final moments, you know, you, you have the, um, the, the last supper where he, he said, tells everybody, you know, this is going to happen. And then, you know, he basically gives them charge, keep going. Right. And so if you really study that account, which I think is really fascinating, you have Jesus Christ, he's washing the feet of his apostles, which is actually a temple ordinance. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there in, in John chapter 20, there's, um, I don't have my scriptures in front of me, but he, he basically says that he was giving them signs, which in Hebrew translates to tokens. Ooh. And so this is all in the upper room, in, in the upper room, right? The last, last supper. In the upper room. And so another, you know, compelling parallel is that Joseph Smith, he's also preparing his apostles in the upper room of the Red Book store, right? Right. And so you have Joseph Smith on May 4th and 5th of 1842, he calls nine of the most faithful of his brethren to his side. And there he presents the sacred ceremonies and instructions known as the endowment, including the washing, the anointing, keywords, signs, and tokens. And that's in the upper room of his mercantile store in Nauvoo, Illinois. And these brethren were Hiram Smith, Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball, Willard Richards, William Marks, William Law, George Miller, Noel K. Whitney, and James Adams. And then he said, as he revealed revealing the Lord's purposes in administering administering these ordinances, the prophet Joseph Smith declared, it is not the will of the Lord that I should live. And I must give you here in this upper room, all the glorious plans and principles whereby men are entitled to the fullness of the priesthood. And then he later wrote in his journal, I spend the upper day, upper part of the store that is in my private office in council with general James Adams of Springfield, patriarch Hiram Smith, Bishops Noel K. Whitney and George Miller and President Brigham Young and elders Heber C. Kimball and Willard Richards, instructing them in the principles and orders of the priesthood, attending to washings, anointings, endowments, and the communication of keys pertaining to the Aaronic priesthood, and so on to the highest order of the Melchizedek priesthood. So he's doing the exact same thing that Christ did. Exactly. Giving them everything they would need to continue the work forward 
to make sure that it it can fulfill its prophetic destiny. Right. And so he's he's not only instructing them in the temple endowment, but he's also giving them keys. Um, George M- Miller also recorded that he, Joseph Washington anointed them kings and priests to God over the house of Israel. Um, and he later gave, he also gave Brigham Young the stealing power. So, um, and Joseph Smith later wrote, brethren, I have conferred upon you now every key and principle and power that is bestowed upon me. Now you must round up your shoulders and bear off the kingdom or you will be damned. So he makes sure that that work is completely finished. The work of transferring the, the authority and those rights of the kingdom to the 12 to make sure that there's no doubts that, that this work will go forward. And I find it interesting that despite what Davis and Griffin want to say, Brigham Young is front and center, first and foremost in those things. Right. And it's, it's soundly documented, first and foremost, that he did receive keys, that he did receiving the stealing power, the power of Elijah right. um, that Joseph Smith had received in 1836, and that he gave them the power and authority to bear off the kingdom, not just lead the church, to, but to bear off the kingdom. Because we have to remember that Joseph Smith was establishing the kingdom of God separate and apart from the church. That's right. So yep. he not, so Brigham Young, you know, if I just in defense of Brigham Young for a minute, we can look to the revelations, Doctrine of Covenants 107, where God, Jesus Christ through Joseph Smith clearly lays out that the quorum of the 12 apostles are equal in authority to the first presidency as far as the church is concerned. So Brigham Young, as the president of the quorum, he absolutely had the right to lead the church, but it wasn't just his position as the president of the quorum of the 12 apostles that gave him that right. It was actually his position in the, in the council of 50. Right. Because he was anointed king, priest, and prophet in addition in the council of 50 to bear off, not just, not just to lead the church, but to bear off the kingdom of God. Right. Right. And, and I think, I think sometimes going back to, we, we don't, sometimes we don't know our own history. When Brigham comes out West, he's not simply here for a church, right? He's here for a political kingdom, right? right. And I think it's sad that we've lost sight of that. So it's really sad. (laughs) We don't know what we're doing when we, when we talk bad about Brigham Young, we don't know what we're doing. No, no, we don't. (laughs) And I find it interesting that the prophet calls him on a mission to go overseas Mm -hmm. before his passing. It makes me wonder if he was like, if Brigham's here, they're going to take him out next because law would have known that Brigham was next in succession. Right. Right. And so I, I often wonder that, if uh, if he'd have been there, if he wouldn't have been a target as well, and you probably could not have got Brigham out of the jail with with uh, Joseph, I imagine he would have been like, "No, I'm going to be right there with you." Right. There's actually a quote from Brigham Young, and I I don't have it. I, I just remembered it as you're talking about that. Well, Brigham Young said, "Had myself and the tw- and the, and the apostles been here, they never would have taken him to Carthage. We wouldn't right. have let them." 
So we know, I I think there was a reason why they were on missions. And, um, and so, so we know, right. Joseph Smith is preparing the people for his death. He's prophesying of his death. He's, he's bestowing the keys. He's giving them instructions to carry on, to carry on his mission, to, to finish the temple, to, um, to do all of these important, his important work. Right. And so now we have Joseph Smith is being charged with treason for destroying the Nauvoo expositor and that he's going to be brought for trial and, um, and, and for declaring martial law. And I, I think it's important that Stephen Markham, who was who also a visitor with he, Stephen Markham and Dan Jones were also in Carthage with Joseph Smith until the day of their death. Most people don't, don't know that. And so um, we can go to Stephen Markham, who is an important historical source on what happens at Carthage and leading up to Carthage. And that he wrote that on the afternoon of June 26th, there was an anti-Mormon meeting at the Hamilton Hotel. And he said, quote, it was proposed that if Illinois and Missouri would join forces to kill the Mormon leader, they would not be brought to justice for it. There were delegates at the meeting from every state of the union, except for three. The next day, a few hours before the attack on the jail, Markham was forced to leave Carthage at Bayonet Point. Wow. Yeah, so... So the conspiracy just got bigger, right? It's not just William Law conspiring with the state of Illinois. Now it's Illinois and Missouri conspiring with all of the states in the union, except for three saying, if the deed is done and we kill Joseph Smith, no one's going to be brought to justice for it. And they have the power to make that happen. I want to make sure I heard you right. Every state in the union, except three. Yes. Did I hear you correctly? Yes. Because that's a new one on me. So tell me the three states that weren't involved. That's a good question. This is from Stephen Markham. And unfortunately, he didn't say which three states. <laughs> okay. Wow. Did, so I, I'm not sure on that. I wish we would have known that. That, that, that pain. <laughs> I'm just trying to wrap my mind around that, right? You have one guy, one guy who the majority of the union sees as such a threat that they have to take him out and they're willing to swear blood oaths by it, right? That's, right. that's the other thing. Do we not see the echoes? My, my mind goes back when I hear all this. It goes back to um, the account of, of Cain when he kills Abel and he takes those covenants, right? He makes... Right promises and, and he's given the title of master mayhem and and everything else and i have nothing to back this up with other than just i feel it in my very soul that i'm i'm sure those are some of the same covenants that those men took right this this feels like ancient evil again right exactly and and i also did want to um you know illustrate the violent nature of the threats against Joseph Smith, because, um, you know, we, the way that Justin Griffin portrays it, he just portrays this mob as docile who were scared off by a few bullets, a few, right, gunshots from a pistol. And so I just want to, again, illustrate 
just the violent nature of the threats against Joseph. So as he's being brought to Carthage, these are the threats. So there's a mob that had formed right outside of Carthage. He, he first is staying in the Hamilton Hotel, and then he has to go from the Hamilton Hotel to, um, to the courthouse. And eventually they're saying, well, he's not safe in the hotel. We got to take him to, to the jail. And this massive mob has formed. And these are some of the threats. So on June 24th, 1844, at midnight, when Joseph entered Carthage, a militia company, the Carthage Graves, encamped on the public square, gave threats as Joseph passed. Um, they said, quote, where's the damn prophet? Stand away and let us shoot the damn Mormons. And then one said, G-O-D, damn you, old Joe, we've got you now. Clear the way and let us have a view of Joe Smith, the prophet of God. He has seen the last of Nauvoo. We will use him up now. Continuing the profanity, abuse, and violent threats, the crowd followed Joseph and company from the public square to the Hamilton house, yelling and cursing and acting like ravenous beasts, hungry for their prey. Um, on June 25th, 1844, Joseph and other members of the Nauvoo City Council under arrest for destroying the ex expositor press were taken before R.F. Smith, Justice of the Peace, and also Captain of the Carthage Greys. By 8 p.m. that same evening, evening, Constable Betty Worth appeared at their lodgings at the Hamilton House and insisted they're going to jail. As Joseph and company were taken from the Hamilton House with Captain Dunn, and some 20 men to guard Joseph, a drunken rabble had collected in the streets, several times broke through the guard and threatened violence against Joseph. Joseph Hiram, Dan Jones, Stephen Markham, John A. Fulmer, John Taylor, and Willard Richards passed the night of the 25th in Carthage Jail. And then on June 26, 1844, Joseph spent the morning in a lengthy interview with Governor Ford. The prophet told Governor Ford that he had considered himself unsafe in Carthage as the town was swarming with men who had openly sworn to take his life. And this is another important um, part of the, of the narrative. It's, it says, by the afternoon on the 26th, Frank Worrell appeared before the jail in command of the Carthage Grays and demanded the prisoners be delivered up to the constable for trial. The jailer refused to surrender Joseph and Hiram until discharged by due course of law and not by the demand of the military despot. But the threats amounting to intimidation, Worrell compelled the jailer against his convic conviction to surrender the prisoners to him. A mob gathered at the jail and resumed their threats of violence, and they unlawfully and illegally dragged the prisoners out and exposed them to imminent danger among the worst enemies. And so I mean, this was what they were dealing with at Carthage, right? Jeez. The threat after threat, they were constantly trying to drag him out of the jail for an opportunity to shoot him. Um, you know, the jailers, their guards were, were scared off. Right. So by the, the, the local militia. Um, yeah. So it, I mean, it paints a pretty different picture when, again, we have to put history into its context, right? We have to know what's leading up to, up to Carthage and, and, and to understand, you know, who is behind the death of, of Joseph Smith. And so I, I've thought a lot about, you know, their narrative and, and I just keep, 
you know, to myself, I'm just thinking if true, which it's not, but if true, Willard Richards and John Taylor are the luckiest criminals in the history of the world. Yeah. <laughs> not only do they end up supposedly committing the murders, but then the mob takes credit for it and they just get off scot-free. Like, does that make any rational sense? No. And, and there's, there's so much wrong with Griffin's account of what happened in that room, right? Mm-hmm. Let's just look at the room. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something that's is, is kind of, I don't know, right up my alley. I watch a lot of MMA, right? I, I'm a big fan of the sport. Mm-hmm. And I'm going somewhere with this. John Taylor was not an extremely large man, right? I think he was just under six foot. We know both the Smith boys were big guys and they were athletic. Mm-hmm. So in Griffin's account, you have Hiram who fires a shot and shoots Taylor in the leg. Taylor, wounded and smaller, somehow manages to get around Hiram and fire the shot that kills him. That's not happening. When, when I saw that, and I watched the movie three times because I wanted to make sure I was getting it as much as I could. And my first thought is, Griffin's never been in a fight, right? I mean, he, he, there, there's no way that's happening. Second, Joseph bursts through the door and rather than go to his brother, he just makes the assumption that Taylor shot him and starts shooting him. There is so much wrong with this. And there's no context like you were saying, right? right? You have to ignore the context of what happened inside the building. Then you have to ignore the context of what happened. You have to ignore the context of blood oaths those blood oaths you have to ignore the context of the mobs you have to ignore it all to come up with this right and and then you have to also ignore joseph smith's own prophecies and this is another port prophecy he gave two days before martyrdom um so he's in he's in carthage june 25th 1844 and several of the officers of the troops in Carthage and other gentlemen are curious to see the prophet. They visit him in the room, Joseph in the room. And General Smith asked Joseph if there was anything or no general. So General Smith, excuse me, that's Joseph Smith. He asked the officers if there was anything in his appearance that indicated he was the desperate character his enemies represented him to be. And he asked them to give him their honest opinion on the subject. The reply was, no, sir. Your appearance would indicate to the very contrary, General Smith, but we cannot see what is in your heart. Neither can we tell what are your intentions. To which Joseph replied, very true, gen- gentlemen, you cannot see what is in my heart and you are therefore unable to judge me or my intentions, but I can see what is in your hearts and I will tell you what I see. I can see that you thirst for blood and nothing but my blood will satisfy you. It is not for crime of any description that I and my brethren are thus continually persecuted and harassed by our enemies, but there are other motives and some of them I have expressed so far as relates to myself and inasmuch as you and the people thirst for blood, I prophesy in the name of the Lord that you shall witness scenes of blood and sorrow, sorrow to your entire satisfaction. Your souls shall be perfectly satiated with blood and many of you 
who are now present shall have an opportunity to face the cannon's mouth from sources you think not of. And those people that desire this great evil upon me and my brethren shall be filled with regret and sorrow because of the scenes of desolation and distress that awaits them. They shall seek for peace and shall not be able to find it. Gentlemen, you will find what I have told you to be truth. And that's in the Doctrinal History of the Church, volume six, page 566. Hmm. And I, I wanted to point out, important point, right? Joseph Smith is prophesying, number one, I know what's in your hearts. I know you're after my, after my life, that you thirst for my blood. And he's, and then he prophesies, well, you will have it. And then he prophesies, basically, this is another prophecy of, of the civil war, because we know, right, right. That that yep. was fulfilled. And so my question then is if he could prophesy the hearts of these men, but not John Taylor Miller Richards. Yeah. So he knew he didn't know that they were also thirsting for his blood. Right. It doesn't make any sense unless you, unless you are saying that Joseph Smith is a false prophet. <laughs> right. Right. And, and, and that's the other thing. Griffin doesn't know favors to Joseph in his documentary. He paints him. He paints him as. Um, not being able to see it coming. Right. If, if, if Taylor and Willard are behind it, he paints him as somebody who, who is caught off guard and shocked by this. And it just doesn't hold water. Right. Yep. Yeah. That it's just amazing to me. Like when I, every time I, I watch that scene of Joseph Smith, he, how they portray him, he comes back in the room and he almost looked like he's like surprised. Right. right? He's kind of like this unaware idiot <laughs> that didn't know that you know that his that Willie Richards and John Taylor were, were going to assassinate him and it just again it calls into question his prophetic mantle yeah and who he was yeah. and 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 just the fact that he's prophesying up until this point of his death and who's going to kill him so wow and and so that's very convenient of Justin to to you know to narrate his his documentary around i just want to know what happened in the two to three minutes in carthage right because when you leave out what's leading up and and no one right knows all those details then it's easily to convince through emotion and sensationalism that this was a a possibility right yeah i uh after i watched the movie the first time I have a good friend who came to work for me years and years ago when I was still in Idaho, who uh, had fought in Iraq. And I asked him, you know, about it. I called him up. I said, watch the scene and tell me what jumps out at you. And I remember he said, there's no way of knowing, right? Because it's a firefight. And anyone who's been in a firefight will tell you this idea of coming in and just being froze that doesn't work right and that scene and it made me think of what you said that that scene where joseph comes in and just stands there as bullets are flying everywhere it's it's silly i i don't know how else to explain it it's silly it's frankly and pardon my expression here kimberly it's a piss poor effort in, in trying to rewrite history 
I mean, at least if you're going to have a conspiracy, at least make it a good one. I mean, this is, this is just horrible. Right. And I want to point out too, is Justin Griffin is also on record of saying, um, he said, someone asked him in an interview and it's on YouTube. So, you know, I can get you the link so people can listen for themselves, but someone asked him, well, what do you think is the weakness of your theory? And he said, that there are no historical sources that John Taylor and Willow Richards had any guns. <laughs> so I, I just want you to think about and your audience to think about, okay, if you are, they, they basically placed John Taylor and Willow Richards on trial. They're, they've charged them with first degree cold-blooded murder. And so, and, and if you are the defense attorney, <laughs> what is the first thing that you're going to defend? How do they kill him with no murder weapon? Right. Right. He's, he's saying that Joseph and Hiram were killed with pistols. What pistols, you know, show me the pistols, you know, there, there's no guns, no. no historical evidence of them having any guns. And he admits that. Jeez. So right there, if, if this were a real court of law today in 2022, that case would be thrown out on that and that point alone that you can't produce a murder weapon. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's my son, my oldest boy came in, came over to visit while I was watching it. He asked me what I was watching and I told him and he just kind of looked at me sideways and I'm like, son, this is, this is the third time I'm watching this. And you know, I love you because I'm never going to ask you to watch this because it's a horrible movie. I, I, I mean, just production wise, it's not good, but I mean, it, it's, I don't know. It's, it's so disheartening that it's gained so much traction. It is. And it, it's unfortunate because he's, again, he's very misleading. Um, and, and he, he's not completely forthcoming. So yesterday I actually had an opportunity to attend the Mormon history association conference. Oh, cool. And, and I attended, um, because it's here in Logan and I, I actually live in Logan. So and it's actually was just a mile down the street from me. I live close to Utah State University. And Sam Weston was, was going to be a presenter on Carthage. And if you remember, he's highlighted in Justin's movie. Yep, he is. And so I'm like, okay, this is the perfect opp opportunity. I want to find out what Sam Weston thought of the movie. And he, is, he was very, very unhappy he, he's actually very frustrated and, and angry um, with Justin for two reasons. Number one, he was very, he was misrepresented in the movie. Um, his research was misrepresented. Um, and number two, he didn't know that Justin Griffin was going to make the documentary. Oh, geez. And he never signed a release. He said he was duped and deceived by Justin. And Justin portrayed himself as a active, faithful, believing member of the church who just wanted to know the truth about Carthage. And he thought, oh, I'm just helping a fellow member of the church to understand better what happened in Carthage. And so he's pretty upset with Justin. And so I was able to, you know, ask some clarifying questions, you know, about his theory. And because I was kind of partial to the Lion Brothers theory. Um, but after talking to Sam Weston, he, he actually makes some very compelling arguments that I think we really need to revisit. 
that, you know, just, I think Justin Griffin purposely left out a lot of details about his theory out of his movie. So number one is that um, Sam Weston says, so he can prove forensically how Joseph Smith and Hiram were killed that corroborates Willard Richard's testimony and John Taylor's testimony. Really? And so, and I just want to highlight that because it's, it's actually very important. And I think for your audience or anyone who's listening that may still be skeptical of the traditional narrative, I, I think this just completely blows it out of the water. The, the traditional narrative or the, or, or the Justin Griffin's theory. So what Sam Weston's um, evidence and theory actually stays true to the traditional narrative the eyewitness accounts and blows Justin's theory out of the water. Can you share it with us? Yes, or... I'm going to share it with you. <laughs> okay, so. Um... Wait, wait, breaking news. Go ahead. Right, and so this just happened yesterday. So this wasn't originally planned, like when I was preparing for your podcast. But so yesterday, just kind of by divine intervention, I was able to attend this conference and, and, and listen to his presentation and then personally interview him. So we have Justin, we all know if you watch the movie, you know, his theory and, and what he shows. And so, um, you know, he, he tries to allege that the church is moving away from the traditional narrative. And there was a representative from the Joseph Smith papers was there. And he said, absolutely. That's not true. We're not moving away from the eyewitness accounts. If anything, we're trying to provide additional documentation to corroborate the traditional you know, the eyewitness accounts. And so um, that, that's another misleading, purposely deceptive claim by Justin Griffin that I, I, I just wanted to debunk really quick. So Sam Weston, um, so his theory is that based on Willie Richard's account, he said he, he said, it's the best account we have, eyewitness account. So his theory is, right, that um, the three men are at the door um, okay. Joseph Smith, John Taylor, and Willie Richards, and that Hiram is back from the door. Now, we, again, we do have what we have paintings and we have, you know, um, reenactments or movies that show Hiram at the door when he shot, right? Right. And, and again, we have to understand what the purpose of movie or cinema is. It, it, it isn't always, it's not always historically accurate. Right. Right. Because they're not trying to be. They're just trying to basically when you make a movie and it's not nefarious and no one in the church or outside the church that have made reenactments of Carthage or are trying to retell a new narrative whether what they're doing is just trying to draw people in through emotion. Right. right? And they take right. a lot of um, creative liberties, I guess, and interpretations. And so they're and and, and that's we need to get away from that. I would, you know, I, I, I think that the church agrees. We, we need to get away from that. And if we're going to portray something, we need to make it as accurately as possible. So, so we have in our minds that Hiram's at the door. And, and I guess that Justin just, again, he takes advantage of, of, of just our already preconceived conceptions. And so he's he rightfully saying, well, that couldn't have happened. And here's why, right? Like, right. He, the angle and, and even Sam Weston agrees. He's like, if he, if he were at the door when he was shot, when the, when the musket ball came through the door and hit him in the face, 
basically wood and splinters would be all over his face, would be embedded in his face. And you would right. see that in the death mask. So he's saying absolutely that Hiram Smith is back from the door in the kind of in the center of the room. And that's Willie Richard's testimony as well. So he believes that there was the first ball struck him outside the window in his back, causing him to fall forward to his knees. And that's when he's claiming I am a dead man. Okay. And then that, and then the musket ball comes to the panel of the door and then hits him in the face. Okay. And what's interesting about that, which I forensically, he can prove that. Really? Did he tell you how exactly? Right. So he's going to have a paper coming out in, in the summer, but yeah, he does explain it. He had diagrams. It's his narrative. So this isn't going to be on video, so I can send you his diagrams. Oh, that would be awesome. Of of how that happened. And okay. So what's interesting is, is that actually just on June 2nd, so that's two days ago, Justin Griffin actually wrote a Facebook post, which I actually agree with. (laughs) And um, I'm just going to read it to you because this actually corroborates Sam Weston's theory. So he says the bullet hole in the vest from the shot on Heimer's back does measure close to 0.69 inches. Then he writes, so yes, he could have been shot by a musket in his back by the mob. This is Justin Griffin. Wow. Admitting this. And he says, but then he says, and here is where he gets deceptive. He says, but there's no gunpowder powder residue or any burn marks around that hole in the vest, which should have been the case if he was shot by a musket at close range. That's why in the documentary, I depicted the mob shooting Hiram in the back with a pistol, but whether it was a musket or pistol does not materially change the inside job theory, which Uh, I disagree with. It, 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 it kind of does, right? Because if, if it's a musket ball and it's an inside job, right? If I'm understanding, and you correct me if I'm misunderstanding this, that means that Taylor or Richards would have had to have been able to smuggle in a rifle, correct? Well, not just a pistol, not just a rifle, but pistols. Because remember, the other shots here alleging are still pistols. So the other marks on their bodies are pistols. So it it makes no sense. But so one thing I want to point out, he's like, well, so again, he's saying there's no gunpowder residue or burn marks around that hole in the vest. So saying, and that would be the case if he shot by musket at close range. Well, according to Sam Weston, he wasn't shot at close range. The, the, it came from outside the jail okay. to the window. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah, no, you're right. Okay. So, and, and, and this actually forensically, we can, we know that's true because he's admitting that the bullet hole in the vest in the back of Hiram's vest does measure that of 0.69 inches. So that is a musket ball shot. That's a musket ball. That's a rifle. He's shot in the back with a musket ball. Right. That you can't dispute that anymore. That's hard evidence, right? The vest right. tells the story. And, and that's, that was Sam Weston's theory. And, and of course, Justin Griffin will argue that it's impossible to have a musket on the ground and see into the jail. Um, but it's it, it's documented that, that that they were also standing on wagons that they brought wagons in so they could stand on wagons to see into the window 
Right. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that, that kind of, I mean, that's soundly documented, right? So, um, I, I just, there, it just, this blows holes in his theory, right? The, so, cause he, he wants to claim there's no way he was shot in the face, which he's claiming he was shot in the face first and could say, I'm a dead man. Well, according to Sam Weston, the ball comes out from the musket from- ball comes from the window, shoots them in the back. That's when he's claiming I'm a dead man. He's falling to his knees. So this is happening within seconds. And right. then the ball comes through the door panel and hits him in the face. Which would account for that stray shot that even Griffin talks about that goes through the panel without, quote, hitting anybody. Right. Holy cow. And you, you're willing to send me that diagram? I am. Yep. That's awesome. And, then, and so, so, we're, so now we've got to account for the ball hole in his neck, right? So another thing that Justin gets really, and, and this is clever of him. Because he's saying there's no way that the bullet hole based on the angle went through the, the nose and came out the neck. So therefore, because there is a bullet wound in the neck. Mm-hmm. So therefore, it had to bend the other way around, right? Right. Well, according to an eyewitness account, I think it was William Daniels, who is, um, he's, is he, he was either part of the mob or the militia, can't remember. He later joins the church. He was an unreluctant member of the mob, I believe. Okay. So his account is that, and he's an eyewitness. He sees Joseph falling from the window, right? Right. So really Richards wasn't throwing him out the window. Anyway, (laughs) Um, (laughs) he sees him falling out the window with no Willie Richards pushing him. So he's saying that, you know, once Joseph's, so there's a, a, essentially a third bullet, meaning Hiram Smith is on the ground after being shot in the face. And then a, another bullet comes in after he's on the ground and hits him in the neck. So there isn't this idea of it has to travel at a weird angle out of his nose and out of his neck, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's just a different wound now. It's- right. So that's, that's a, an eyewitness account of a different wound. Wow. And have we always known about that that other account from uh, Daniels? I actually just recently found it, so I don't know. I, wow. I, I haven't read it in any any books that have been written about the martyrdom. I actually had someone send it to me. I didn't find it. Someone just sent it to me. So it, it's a, it's a recent find. I'm sure it's always been there, but I, I don't know if it's made it into any of the official history books of people that have written about Carthage. So where do you think with this new evidence, right, that even Griffin himself now has to say, yeah, that's that's probably right. Where do you think this takes Griffin's hypothesis now? What, let me rephrase that. Where do you think Griffin goes next? Well, I mean, he, he kind of says already in his post, he says, he says whether or not a muscular pistol does does not materially change the inside job theory. So he's still claiming this does not change the inside job theory. Jeez. He like, it, I don't know how you can, we have to, we have to like grapple with this, right? We have to say, we have to be thinking critically here. Right. You know, like, I think this does change everything. This alone changes everything. So another thing he'll say, he'll say, well, there's no blood stains. Right. Right. 
on the back. So therefore, so that this has been his, his point all along, because there's no blood stains. That means that the shot came after that's what he's claiming. So he, so Hiram already bled out from the face and the neck. So therefore when he, by the time he shot in the back, there's no blood, but actually, and so Sam is alleging that this was the first shot, right? Right. And so actually Hiram Smith's body was packed on ice. Oh, what happens when you put ice on blood? Coagulates, right? You can remove blood stains with ice. Really? Oh, try uh, your wife probably know as a mother and a housewife who has removed many a blood stains with (laughs) cold water and ice. It's easily removed from, I can remove blood from a white t-shirt with ice. Is it bad now? I want my kid to fall down just a couple times so he can scrape up so I can try this. Right. You, you try it and you'll see. You can remove ice soak, blood stained garments in water and ice, and I can remove all of the blood stain. Wow. And so you have Hiram Smith, who is packed on ice, right? People. Yeah. I don't know. So. The bodies are, that, that's another eyewitness account of the, I mean, this is also documented that the bodies were on ice. Holy cow. So yeah, yeah his, his theory is at best on life support now, right? right. As, as he presented it, it's. Hmm. So this isn't about, will they, you know, the theory that they only washed the top, the bottom part of the clothes and not the top. And that's why we have blood stained on the top and not the bottom. So I'm alleging that the blood stains were removed because of the ice. Right. Because it was in his back and he was laying on his back, obviously, when you're, your body's transported, they don't put you on your face. No, no, that, no, that, that takes care of that. That takes care of, of Griffin's assertion there. Mm-hmm. Wow. I can't wait for Weston's paper to come out now. Right. And he's actually doing blood analysis on the shirt as well. Forensic blood analysis on on Hiram's shirt right now. So Griffin really, again, pardon the expression, really pissed him off, right? So, oh, he's he's very mad. He's pretty mad. <laughs> wow. And he's not afraid to say it either. Good. Good. Fantastic. All right. So after the martyrdom takes place, what are some of the key points about the trial? Right. So this is also very important. I'm just going to go over just a quick points. Um, so we can, we can move on, but, um, so at the trial, the trial begins in May of 1845. We know that the Mormon leaders are counts. They counsel their members not to attend. And the reason is, is because they knew, well, if Joseph Smith isn't safe, you're not going to be safe. And we know that the law didn't protect Joseph. Um, the anti-Mormons posted a mob of nearly 1,000 people outside of Carthage in the courthouse. And the, and the audience inside of, of the courthouse consisted of mob members, and they all carried guns. And so this not only intimidated the people coming to the trial, but also intimidated the judge and the prosecution and the jury. Um, the prosecution even public, publicly acknowledged that the crowd was anti-Mormon. And at the start of the trial, he told the jury, there are hundreds here, I have no doubt, who are ready to applaud you and rejoice with you if you should return a verdict of not guilty against these men. 
Mm. So right, you know, right at the beginning, you know, this, it was, it was pretty much a sham from the beginning. And, um, and I do recommend this book, um, the history of Warsaw, Illinois by Brian Stutzman. He covers the trial in great detail. And, um, and I'm just going to read a part because he just does so well uh, about what happened when the, with the jury and how it was um, pretty much stacked against the Mormons. So, um, so before the start of the trial, the county commissioners had selected a jury, a standard legal procedure at the time. The defense opened their case by claiming that the county commissioners that seated the jury were prejudiced against the defendants. They also claimed the sheriff and others involved were also tainted. They next said, by having biased people in the case, the commissioners involved in the selecting of the jury, they themselves could taint the jury. The defense proposed that the current jury be dismissed and a new jury pulled from those currently in the audience be seated. Prosecuting attorney Josiah Lamburn vigorously objected and claimed this procedure was not supported in the law. He ended by challenging the defense to show legal precedents or even a single case where random people in the audience had replaced a seated jury. Now, if you know beforehand, there were nine Mormons in the seated jury. Right. So they now replaced them with all anti-Mormons. So because they replaced them with this with people sitting in in the audience. The defense countered that there had never been a case like this, specifically, they claimed, with so much prejudice in the proceedings before the trial, no precedence, precedence was needed. Incredibly, Judge Young accepted the argument, dismissed the properly seated jury, and seated a new jury with people selected from the anti-Mormon audience. This change put the prosecution, prosecution at a great disadvantage from the start. I want to go back to something you said in the account where it said this people would not would would be how, how is that phrase that they would rejoice if uh, not guilty verdicts were returned. Mm-hmm. In your estimation and looking at it, was that maybe a veiled threat of if it does come back as guilty, you could be dealing with civil unrest? Yeah that well it was basically a threat against their lives essentially if they're they'll basically they'll rejoice if you find them not guilty but you know what's going to happen if you do find them guilty okay it's 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 a it's a veiled threat okay i just wanted to make sure i understood that correct right right. get get the context of that right and coupled with the fact that they're attending the trial with rifles Yeah, a thousand yeah. men outside yeah. with rifles. That would do it. That would do it. That would scare me. Um, so, and then also they make sure that there is not a single Mormon on that jury. Right. So it's it's a sham, right? And I think that goes back also to a, a key point that that Griffin tried to make, where he said, you know, he John Taylor told everybody, everybody within the church, excuse me, that they shouldn't test you know be part of that trial and i thought it was a weak statement to make because of course he's going to say that i mean the account you just gave us there's men outside with rifles right also you've they just took out the leader of the movement they don't have a problem taking out somebody else who's just testifying if they can get to the to the top you know they can get to to somebody below 
Right. And, and again, we know that the, the law wasn't going to protect the Mormons. No. Right. The state had failed in protecting Joseph. So your best bet was just to stay away and let God have vengeance. Well, and, and again, it's not just the fact that they failed to protect Joseph. I go back to what you said earlier that caught me by surprise. All but three states conspired to kill him. Mm-hmm. Th- that's just not a failure to protect. That is an active participant hand in doing away with it, right? So, right. yeah. Wow. So, and it, it's important. So Joseph murders included a prominent newspaper editor, which is Thomas Sharp, a state senator, who is Jacob Davis, a justice of the peace, and two military commanders. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to ask you to repeat that again because I want to make sure I heard that correctly. A state senator was involved mm-hmm. yes. in the mob. In in yes, in the mob. Right. So these are the men that were were charged. There were nine men charged with his murder that went to trial. They included the prominent newspaper editor who was Thomas Sharp, state senator who was Jacob Davis, and a justice of the peace and two military commanders. I am sorry I had to have you repeat that, but it blows my mind, right? And these are things that, and again, I've been in Mormonism for 25 years. And these, you know, there are some things here that you're revealing that I hadn't heard before, right? I mean, the fact that it's a, a state senator, a sitting state senator, a newspaper guy, I kind of get the newspaper guy, right? I mean, they've obviously been slanted forever, but, you know, it, and and then military men i it's yeah yeah and so they they had promised not to actually arrest these men before the trial and i think the sheriff went in ahead and he arrested jacob davis who was the state senator and then and then the senate and the congress basically threatened the sheriff and they had to release him so again wielding their political power to protect the state senator Oh, geez. I'm just, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm I'm pausing. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it. Right. I mean, this is a conspiracy that goes up to the state level. And and I'm thinking all but three States, there's gotta be some sort of federal involvement then. Right. Is there, is there any evidence you have a federal involvement in this conspiracy? if you think about it, Joseph Smith, he asked for redress several times from the president and he, he denied him. Never got it. Never got it. Wow. And he was promised redress and then he turned his back on him. Holy cow. And, and not only that, he's running for president. So of course he's, again, he's a, he's a threat to the federal government, not just the state government. That's another angle, you know, knowing he ran for president but yeah that's another angle i i hadn't thought of wow is there any other key points from the trial um those were the main ones i wanted to point out and and you know just looking at this this historically like this is a pivotal moment in just u.s history absolutely because there's not another incident in american history where a major religious figure was killed because of his religion and then American mm-hmm. law refused to execute justice. And, and it's really sad considering that Joseph Smith was the biggest advocate for the Constitution of the United States. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, 
the episode we did last night, we, we did, I felt like we did a good job uh, of, I shouldn't say the, the, the episode I just released last night. I felt like we did a really good job of showing that, that the council of 50, because that's the other misconception you hear is that the council of 50 was just another way for Joseph Smith to attain more power. And realistically, when you read the notes on the council of 50, it was something meant to support men in their rights. And so, right. yeah, holy cow. So do we know, do we have any information about whatever happened to some of those men who were the conspirators? Um, well, I know like Levi Williams, like the, he basically was given gifts and, um, yeah, I, I don't, other than that, I, they just went on and lived peaceful lives. And, um, I mean, they will face judgment. I I'd have to go back to each individually, but it, as far as justice was never, never served, never served. So, hmm. Wow. It, it just gives you pause to think about what all was standing in opposition to Joseph Smith during that time. It shows a strength and depth of character that I don't think we truly begin to understand. Right. Well, I mean, Joseph Smith himself said, I'm going like the lamb to the slaughter. So right. we know it, again, and he, he told the saints, he told the Nauvoo Legion right before going to Carthage, he said, if the saints can't have their rights, then my blood will fall like rain on the ground. Jeez. So he, he literally sacrificed himself to protect the saints. And, and again, I just, my biggest criticism of Justin Griffin's narrative is that it makes a complete mockery of his death and you know, it, it's as if his death was in vain. You right. know, if he's, if he's murdered from the inside for by Brigham Young to take over the church, then his, then his death is in vain. The restoration is in vain, right? That means that no priesthood continues, no keys continue. Then, then what are we, where's our hope? Right. Right. There's, there's no restoration. There's no priesthood line of authority. There's, there's nothing. Jeez. Yeah. So let's go ahead and, and move on there then to, to some of those prophetic parallels, because I got to be honest with you, as you were telling me some of that stuff from, um, from our phone conversation, I was blown away. I, it was so fascinating to hear all of this. Right. It, it is actually very fascinating and I won't have time to get into all of the details, but I, I just want to, so I basically do just want to bear a testimony um, that the martyrdom of the prophet Joseph Smith, like his life is actually the fulfillment of hundreds of years of, of ancient biblical prophecy. Meaning if Joseph Smith is prophesied in scripture, which he is of the servant to come forth in the latter days to restore the gospel, that means every part of his life is prophesied of his life, his mission, including his death. And so I just want to show how and where in scriptures is Joseph Smith's death prophesied of? Because it's a prophetic event. Okay. So do you want to just get started? Yeah, let's just dive into that. Because okay, this this is some juicy stuff, right? As as you were telling me about it, this 
this really got me excited. Okay, so I'm going to need to read some quotes, and and really, again, it has to. We have to understand who the Prophet Joseph Smith is, right? Right. Uh, we we really do need to understand that um, that he is like John Taylor testified. He did more save Jesus Christ only for the salvation of men, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a bold statement. Uh huh. But it can be backed up. That is, I will test, I will go to my grave bearing testimony of that fact. And I as well, because, and it's another bold statement to say that I think next to the death and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, this is probably one of the most important events in, in all of history. I can't agree. Of the martyrdom of Joseph Smith. I can't agree at all he, not just his martyrdom but his life in general mm-hmm. i when i i lived out on the eastern shore of maryland and i had an opportunity because we subbed out to uh the university of maryland they had kind of a, a satellite campus and just real quick i took a course in jacksonian america and you, they covered the mormons a little bit and when it came to the section about the mormons uh, and i don't think my professor knew i was lds he said something that just struck me. He said, when you're dealing with Joseph Smith, you have to come to one of two conclusions. Either he was the most raw genius that has ever been produced in America, and certainly America's time, but maybe the world, or he was exactly what he said he was. And, and I wrote that quote down, and I've kept it all these years, and it's burned into my heart because I know where I fall on that. Right. And, and Joseph Smith did say in the council of 50, that he was a God to this generation. So, um, so, you know, like, as we've been talking about the martyrdom, again, we were talking about what happened leading up to it, but we really have to understand why, why the martyrdom, why did it have to happen? And so just prior to his death, the prophet Joseph Smith declared, I am tired. I have been mobbed. I have suffered so much. Some of the brethren think that they can carry this work out better than I can, far better. I have asked the Lord to take me out of this world. I have stood all I can. And then he said, I have to seal my testimony to this generation with my blood. I have to do it. For this work will never progress until I'm gone. For the testimony is of no force until the death of the testator. And then he goes on to say, People little know who I am when they talk about me and they never know will, they never will know until they see me weighed in the balance in the kingdom of God. Then they will know who I am. See me as I am. I dare not tell them and they do not know me. So Joseph Smith is saying that even, even though the saints did not ever know who he really was, right? They did not know him. And so I think sometimes we oversimplify the martyrdom. And so here he's saying the Testament is of no force until the death of the testator. And Paul in the new Testament taught this exact same principle. So in the new Testament, Paul said, the blood must be shed as the price of freedom and of truth, but most of all, as the price of the witness of Jesus Christ, he said in Hebrews chapter nine, for a Testament is of, is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. 
whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. Um, and so it's significant to know that in the Joseph Smith translation of Hebrews chapter nine, that the word testament is replaced with the word covenant. Ooh. So basically Joseph is saying, so if you reread those scriptures, he's saying the covenant is not in force until the testator is dead. So Joseph Smith, he shed his blood in order that the final testament, or in other words, the reestablishment of the new covenant might be in full effect, right? He's reestablishing the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant to this generation. And it's not in full effect until he sheds his blood. According to Hebrews chapter nine. That is, and that's one of the things that, that because of translation or whatever gets overlooked, it makes sense. It keeps with biblical tradition, scriptural tradition, and also puts Joseph Smith in a light of being a willing sacrifice. Next. Right. Next to Jesus only. Exactly. And, you know, we, I want to talk about the symbolism of blood for a minute because blood is a symbol, this is the symbol, excuse me, a symbol of death, but is also a symbol of life. And when, so when Adam was cast out of the Garden of Eden, right? Mm -hmm. And, and the coats of skin were made for him as a covering. It's, it's the idea that something had to die for Adam to be covered, right? So the right. animal had to die, had to shed his blood in order for Adam to be covered. And right. so the idea that in order that blood is a symbol of life or new life, new birth, right? right. We see that in the symbolism of when a woman gives birth, it's, there has to be blood and water present. So symbolism of rebirth. And anyway, we can go into I mean, that's a different topic. Lots of symbolism. Yeah. I actually yeah. love gospel symbolism, but Joseph Fielding Smith also said Joseph Smith had to die. Why? Because we read in the scriptures that the testimony is not a force without the death of the testator. That is in his particular case, but also in the case of Jesus Christ, the sealing of the testimony through the shedding of blood would not have been complete in the death of the prophet Joseph Smith alone. It required the death of Hiram Smith and the prophet Joseph Smith, who jointly held the keys of this dispensation. It was needful that these martyrs seal their testimony with their blood, that they might be honored and the wicked might be condemned. So it wasn't just that Joseph Smith had to die, but we also know that Hiram Smith held, held the keys jointly with Joseph Smith. Right. I don't know if you knew that. So I did. Yeah. But it is a point that's often overlooked, right? Is that Hiram was was essentially prophet 1a if you will right right behind mm -hmm. joseph but they held right. the keys jointly together right and so they both they both had to seal their testimony with their blood so they both had to die and we see so again he's teaching so again so you have paul saying the covenant's not enforced without the death of the testator and joseph Fielding smith is saying well it, it they also need to seal their testimony with blood basically so it's it stands as a, a testimony for the righteous and against the wicked mm -hmm. 
And this principle is taught in the Book of Mormon. We have the story of Abinadi who right. suffered death by fire. And so his death was also an act of witnessing through the sealing of, of the testimony of his blood. Right. So when you, when you think of, of, um, Abinadi, he could not die or is when he's giving that final testimony, testimony to King Noah, he basically is saying, you can't, you know, I'm not going to die until I witness against you. And then his testimony is sealed with his blood. If that makes sense, if you go back and study his, um, no, that, that makes perfect sense. And, and we saw that with, with some of the apostles too, right? Uh-huh. Peter, uh, I believe Stephen, all of them had to, to give up to, to seal that testimony with their blood. Right. So in Mosiah 17 verses nine through 10, that Abinadi says, yay, and I will suffer even into death. And I will not recall my words and they shall stand as a testimony against you. And if you slay me, you shall slay innocent blood. And this shall also stand as a te- testimony against you at the last day. So we see that this, this principle he's teaching is that the sealing of the blood is an act of, of witnessing, right. right? It's going to stand as a, as a testimony against the wicked, which is pretty, I think it's pretty profound when you think about it. Um, you know, you don't want to be mocking Joseph Smith's death. No. Um, yeah. It's going to stand as a testimony against you. Yeah. So I think that's, that's is why we need to understand the prophetic significance of the martyrdom. Um, anyway. Um, yeah. So. Which goes back to what you said makes a mockery of Joseph Smith's death. Right. Right. And anybody who may start to participate in that in any way, shape or form by, promoting this movie could I'll, I'll never pretend to know the mind and will of the almighty but could be on that same shaky ground right and and so i do hope that there that you know as as more evidence comes out of and more people are to are willing to bear testimony of the truthfulness of the martyrdom like sam weston and others that can show forensically um different aspects of the martyrdom i i, I my pr- my prayer is that justin griffin will repent and, and those that they're pushing this narrative will, will be called to repentance so that they, they don't have, they don't have to stand at the, at the judgment bar. Right. And have that testimony witness against them of what they've done. So, uh, you know, I do have a lot of, you know, I'm willing to give mercy to those. And, and, and oh, my absolutely. prayer is, you know, is that it's another reason why I do want to stand as a witness and, and I guess as a voice for the truth. So it is so that, you know, the, they'll be given an opportunity to repent. So I just wanted to add that in there. Um, but I do want to, I also want to say though, that if just a narrative is true, then nothing of prophetic consequence happened. Right. Right. Killed by his friends for no other reason than they want power. And then that means that there's nothing of prophetic consequence in the martyrdom. And, and my argument is, is that the martyrdom is is a fulfillment of prophecy. Um, so I don't know how there's a lot we, we could get into. Um, Bruce R. McConkie did say, he said, every prophecy about any of the great and glorious events destined to p- take place in the dispensation of the fullness of time 
is in its nature a prophecy about Joseph Smith. <laughs> so, um, yeah. You can't escape it, right? You have to deal right. with Joseph Smith. You have to deal not just with his life, but with his martyrdom. Right. It's, the, everything is prophesied. Right. Every right. part of his life, including his death. And so I, I believe that every member of the church, you know, everyone who, anyone who claims to know that Joseph Smith is a prophet, they have to have a solid testimony and a witness that he was the man designated even before the foundations of the earth to stand at the head of this, the greatest of gospel dispensations, right? That he is, his life and his mission is not just, it was foreordained before even the foundations of the earth. We have to have that sure witness and testimony. Um, and that his life and mission was known to all of the holy prophets, even before the world, the world began. Um, he was, he, he was known by both name and family to the ancient prophets who described his role in the gathering of Israel and bringing forth the book of Mormon and adding the canon of scripture with personal revelations and restoring other ancient scriptural texts. I mean, we should know that, you know, Adam, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses, they all knew Joseph Smith. They didn't just know him. They actually also all came to him. It's recorded right. in the. I believe section 128 of the doctrine of covenants. Yep, you're correct. They all came to him and they all personally taught him and tutored him and gave them their keys. Yeah. Kimberly, I'm going to say something and, and you can correct me if you think I'm off base here, but next to a testimony of the savior and of God, the father, the testimony of who Joseph was and his prophetic role Mm -hmm. is essential in mormondom for not only salvation but exaltation is that overstating it in any way N not at all i mean we have prophetic quotes of brigham young saying no one's getting into the celestial kingdom without the certificate of joseph smith jr right right he is a vital figure he is Again, next to Jesus only I, is right. the only thing I keep coming back to over and over again, which makes all the things we've talked about previously so important that you have a correct and true understanding of it. Because if it's perverted in any way, your testimony really isn't a force in that. Right. Yep. Um, I mean, there's I have so many quotes, but. I'll try to get to the most important here. Um, so what I, I think it's also important, and this is just a little other side note too, that Hiram, Hiram's name, Hiram's name, because again, we, we were talking about how Hiram had to be also be martyred with, with Joseph Smith in order to steal that testimony or establish that covenant. And Hiram's name in Hebrew means my brother is exalted. So right <laughs> there, he, you know, he testifies of who his name he is testifying of who Joseph Smith is. Um, anyway, so I just think what more appropriate name for him to, would have been given to the man who was destined to go to Carthage and steal his testimony with his blood, 
alongside of Joseph Smith. And I don't laugh because I think it's funny. I laugh because you can't, you couldn't have made that up, right? I mean, that's just, you see the hand of the Almighty in all of this, all the way through. Right. Yep. And, and then I want to also point out, there's um, the legend of the Messiah Ben Joseph. Yes. And I want to bring that up because this is of great significance. And this isn't, this is a Hebrew tradition. This is a Jewish tradition, mm -hmm. but we have, we have Latter-day Saint scholars who have also, you know, Joseph Fielding McConkie, he actually wrote a book on this. He, um, his name shall be Joseph about the Messiah Ben Joseph prophecies and how they relate to Joseph Smith. Um, there's other scholars that have come out of BYU. Um, I think his name was Trevor hatch i think he also wrote a excellent paper on this so this isn't this is a this is actually a jewish legend but it's also been corroborated by several latter-day saint scholars so um so what is the legend of the messiah ben joseph um there's an ancient hebrew tradition which speaks of two separate messiahs that were foreordained to arise among covenant people of the lord one from the tribe of judah and one from the tribe of Joseph. So we have to understand that Messiah in Hebrew means anointed one. Mm -hmm. So Messiah ben, there's, so there's two Messiahs. One is Messiah ben David and Messiah ben Joseph. So Messiah ben David is the anointed one from the tribe of Judah and the Messiah ben Joseph is the anointed one from the tribe of Joseph. Right? Um, so it doesn't mean that there's two messiahs that work out an atonement, just that it just means anointed one. Um, so the Messiah Ben Joseph concept first arose when Rachel, the mother of Joseph of Egypt, prophesied that Joseph would be the ancestor of a messiah who would arise at the end of at the end of days. So it's scriptural. Check. And um, and then we can go into all the prophecies. People should be familiar if, if they read their scriptures. <laughs> Joseph of Egypt names Joseph Smith, right? Right. There'll be a servant, a Latter-day seer raised up out of my loins to come forth. Right. So we know Joseph of Egypt, he's prophesying of this Messiah named Joseph, you know, coming from the tribe of Joseph. Um, we have, you know, um, so that's in Genesis chapter 50. I would recommend reading the Joseph Smith translation on that one. Um, so he's foretelling the events. Joseph in Egypt is actually in Joseph Smith's patriarchal blessing. And, um, in his patriarchal blessing in 1834, I'll just read you a, a, a quick, um, quote from that. It says, behold, and now this is the patriarchal blessing given to him by his father. Okay. Joseph Smith senior. He says, behold, he looked after, he's speaking of Joseph in Egypt to Joseph Smith. He said, behold, he looked after his posterity in the last days when they should be scattered and driven by the Gentiles and wept before the Lord. He sought diligently to know from whence the sun should come, who should bring forth the word of the Lord by which they might be enlightened and brought back to the true fold. And his eyes beheld thee, my son, his heart rejoiced and his soul was satisfied. Wow. So he was saying that Joseph in Egypt was praying to the Lord saying, who is this son that you promised would come forth to gather my people. And the Lord showed him Joseph Smith and, and then Joseph Smith senior saying he beheld thee, my son. 
And, um, and Joseph Smith taught that the patriarchal authority belonged to the blood of Joseph. And so he established his father, Joseph Sr. as the patriarch of the church. In a prophecy about his father, Joseph pronounced the same blessing on his father that Jacob had on Joseph. Quote, he shall be as a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well whose branches run over the wall and his seed shall abide in strength. So that was a prophecy about his own father. Right. So it's pretty, it's pretty significant that yeah, he is, is, you know, he's this prophesied figure that the blood of Joseph and Egypt is going to run through the, the veins of Joseph Smith and his family. And that's what establishes the, the priesthood authority in this last dispensation. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a blood lineage. Right. And um, so Messiah ben Joseph is no minor, minor figure in, in Hebrew tradition and in the scriptures. And, um, I'm just going to read, I'll just read of some of the prophecies of, of this Messiah ben Joseph and, and it will be easy to see how they parallel Joseph Smith. Right. Um, so, and and this is setting up to how the prophetic parallels of his death. So it's kind of a, we have to understand again. So we have to understand if his life is prophesied in scripture, then so is his death. So, the Messiah ben um, Joseph prophecy is that he will be the second in rank of the two messiahs, okay. right? So yep. we we can see that, right? If he does more, save Jesus Christ only, right? He's second in rank. Um, he's referred to as as King Messiah. So again, Joseph Smith was crowned King of Israel in right. the Council of Fifty, um, and he and then obviously the other prophecy we talked about that he descends from the tribe of Joseph through Ephraim which we know he's, that was, that's in Doctrine and Covenants. Um, so the Messiah ben Joseph, so here's the other prophecies. The Messiah ben Joseph is to be held in reserve to live on the earth in the last days. Now these are prophecies coming from, these are what the Jews are saying. These are saying, these are prophecies we've identified in scripture about this Messiah ben Joseph that they don't know the identity of, right? He said, well, he'll be held in reserve to live on the earth in the last days. The Messiah ben Joseph is to be born through the lineage of Joseph and Egypt's birthright son, Ephraim, right? right. We, already, we already know that. Um, the Messiah ben Joseph is to live upon the earth prior to when Messiah ben David appears in all his glory and is to act as his forerunner. Hmm. And, you know, you'd think, oh, if they just, if we could just introduce him to Joseph Smith, they would, they would know that this is the Messiah that they're looking for. <laughs> um, the Messiah ben Joseph is to be the revealer of the true faith of Jehovah. In one Jewish legend, Joseph of Egypt prophesies that the Messiah ben Joseph, Joseph's cause will, will cause some erroneous elements of religious worship that have been crept in among the Israelite tribes to vanish. Thus, he will perform his work after a period of apostasy. Jeez. Right? And that's been fulfilled, right? Um, the prophet, Eli- okay, we know that, he- oh, well, this, well, we know about how, um, right? The prophet Elijah, Elijah's return to the earth. And that's foretold in the days of the Messiah and Joseph. So they believe also that the prophet Elijah will return during the days of Messiah and Joseph, which we know that that's also perf- has been fulfilled. Right. Cause, cause Elijah appeared to him. Mm-hmm. Um, Messiah and Joseph is to rebuild the temple of Israel and restore its true worship. Wow. And we know that that was fulfilled. And so um, 
the Messiah ben Joseph is to gather the children of Israel around him, including a portion of the, of the lost 10 tribes. And, and we know that that's still in fulfillment, right? That's he, still happening now. That That is... The true Israel will only be gathered to the true Messiah. Right. Yep. Messiahs. Ben David. Um, right. Um, the Messiah Ben Joseph would be protected by the Messiah Ben David. So again, this goes back to Joseph Smith's prophecy where he's saying, I will not die until my work has been fulfilled. And that was, that's the prof prophecy in the Messiah Ben Joseph is that he would be protected until he could fulfill his mission. Right. Um, and like I said before, the Messiah Ben Joseph is to be a king. Again, we already established that he was crowned king of Israel. And then the most compelling is the Messiah Ben Joseph is to die as a martyr. Oh. So, again, these are the Hebrew traditions of who this Messiah Ben Joseph is. He's yep. to die as a martyr. Um, and again, when John Taylor informs us that when Joseph Smith went to Carthage to deliver himself up to the pretended requirements of the law, he said, I'm going like a lamb to a slaughter, but I am calm as the summer's morning. I have conscience void of offense toward God and toward all men. I shall die innocent and it shall be said of me. He was murdered in cold blood. So wow. he truly is a martyr. Um, so the story, so the story of Joseph and Hiram's death is, is more than a martyrdom. It's more than a sealing of the testimony and blood. It's the story of two men who are willing to die for their people. The, pro the prophet fulfilled his vow and spilled his blood on behalf of his beloved saints. For many centuries, the house of Israel likely performed sacrifices in remembrance of both the son of God and also the prophet Joseph Smith. And there is an Elias astronomer, Dr. John P. Pratt, who, who did excellent research on this. And so I'm just going to quote him. Um, he says, every day, two lambs were sacrificed, one at dawn and one in the afternoon. And he's talking about the Mosaic sacrifices. It has been suggested that the first lamb sacrificed at dawn, the meridian of their day, which began at sunset, represented Jesus Christ, um, known as the Messiah in Ju Judah, the anointed one from the tribe of Judah, which would be Christ. Right. The second lamb sacrificed near the end of day, representing near the end of history, likely symbolized Joseph Smith, known as the Messiah Ben Joseph, being from that tribe. Thus, Joseph Smith was apparently of such stature to have been symbolized by daily sacrifice in the law of Moses. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty significant. Going back to Messiah Ben Joseph. The first time I heard about that, Kimberly, I was living again on the Eastern shore and I worked with a guy whose dad was a rabbi and they had invited me and my family over for uh, their Sabbath meal and their tradition. And I got a chance to talk with his dad and his dad's name was Zeke. And as we were talking and he was asking me about my religion and what I believed, because you know, there's, there's plenty of Mormons on the East coast, but we're, we're pretty far scattered. Right. Um, as I told them about who Joseph Smith was, he, I'll never forget. Cause he just kind of leaned back in his chair a little bit and he looked at me and he's like, that sounds an awful lot like Messiah Ben Joseph. And I was like, well, who's that? And he basically said everything you said, minus a few things. I didn't know that he was supposed to, to be a martyr, but 
he talked about temple temples and priesthood and all those other things i heard that 15 plus years ago now and it's just again i mean the parallels are so striking and if you just use you know the science of statistical probability that that would happen mm-hmm. it's next to to impossible and it's not like joseph smith could have set himself up to be that because that that tradition wasn't something that was commonly shared with quote gentiles that was something that was kept pretty guarded by by the rabbis from what i understand for a long time right and so there there's more <laughs> <laughs> so um the so the symbol for the Messiah and Joseph is the bullock. Okay. And that's the symbol of the bull. It's also the symbol of the tribe of Joseph with the two horns symbolizing Ephraim and Manasseh. Um, and so we know that, you know, the Ephraim has a divine mission to gather Israel in the latter days. And Joseph Smith leads the mission as the head of this dispensation. So you see that Elijah's mortal life and the, and the mission of the prophet Joseph Smith have interesting parallels so when the prophet elijah conferred his keys upon the prophet joseph smith he was endowing power for joseph smith to accomplish a mission similar to and foreshadowed by the prophet elijah's mortal mission in other words elijah's mortal life was a prefiguring of joseph smith so when elijah offered sacrifice the evening sacrifice it centered around a bull the bullock lying on the altar as a sacrifice was was then i would argue far more than a ritual ceremony it was likely a prophetic foreshadowing of the literal human sacrifice that would be given for god and his saints and the hope that zion would be preserved and eventually established so joseph had to sacrifice himself jeez yeah holy cow that gave me goosebumps i mean just just Look, I'm a guy who who likes to talk, but some of this is just leaving me speechless thinking about it, right? It and again, you can't you have to deal with Joseph Smith. You have to come to a testimony of his prophetic calling that seems to have echoes as far back as the human family can go. Right. Including his death, like I said. So his death is being foreshadowed. Yeah, that he is going to he will lay him down himself down as a sacrifice, right? It, 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 it's not just that you know he foreshadowing that he would be killed. It's like no, he's going to lay his down his he's going to lay himself down as that sacrifice. Right, and and there's there's so much that that ties into that, right? Like it, that was the sacrifice of the evening, right? The the bullock, uh-huh. right? Is that a reference to where we are? If if you were to say, you know, all of human existence is a day, does that tell us where we are? That we're we're in the evening now? Are we that exactly. close? Yep. We yep, exactly. And and so Joseph Smith said on June 16, 1844, like he's foretelling what's lying ahead. He says, I do not regard my own life. I'm ready to be offered a sacrifice for this people. He says, for what can our enemies do? Only kill the body and their power is then at an end. Stand firm, my friends, never flinch. Do not seek to save your lives for he that is afraid to die for the truth will lose eternal life. Hold out to the end and we shall be resurrected and become like gods and reign in celestial kingdoms, principalities, and eternal dominions. While this mob 
will sink into the portion of all those who shed innocent blood. God has tried you. You are a good people. Therefore, I love you with all my heart. Greater love have no man than that he should lay down his life for his friends. You have stood by me in the hour of trouble. I am willing to sacrifice my life for your preservation. And that was in the Millennial Star, volume 54, page 409. Jeez. So again, he's saying, I am dying. I'm sacrificing myself for you in order to save you. So again, as I've said dozens of times throughout this interview, Joseph, uh, Justin Griffin's movie makes a complete mockery of this sacrifice. Yeah, it's, I I don't even know what other word to call it other than sacrilegious, right? I mean, and, and when you start gaining a better idea of just how important Joseph was in the plan of human, uh, of human, in the quest for human exaltation. Yeah. Right. It, and, and I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm at a loss for words here because it, it's breathtaking when you understand the scope, right? That someone, it, and you, you can only hope that he doesn't know what he's doing, right? That he doesn't have a testimony of how important Joseph Smith is. Cause I feel like if he did, you are committing a pretty grave sin that I'm not sure you can really come back from. Right. I, I would agree. I, my, my hope is, is that he just doesn't, you know, with more knowledge cause more condemnation. And I would just hope that he, he lacks this sufficient knowledge to really understand what he's doing. Right. So that, you know, cause I, I do pray for mercy because like I said, this is akin to betraying the savior. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Um, it's pretty serious what's, what's yep. happening. And so I, I think again, I'm hoping that I can be a, a voice or a, a testimony of other people. So that, you know, if, if they follow this narrative, they'll be counted among traitors. His, the, their names will go down in history as traitors. Absolutely. I don't think that's overstating it whatsoever at all. And I just want to commend you on the work you've done. Kimberly, I've seen no, no person that's a, that has led that charge as vigorously as you have a lot of folks owe you a big debt they really do because you have been at the forefront of this thing you know i haven't i feel like i haven't always probably you know my approach hasn't always been good um i am very passionate obviously about this topic and and my truly my desire is because i just don't want to see anybody else deceived no and so um and, and and at the same time, you know, raising my voice in the public square in defense of, you know, Brigham Young and John Taylor and Willie Richards has come with a lot of persecution. And so, you know, I've, I've taken some pretty big hits against my own character. And um, so, and that's been hard, but, but nothing compared to what the saints went through. Like it's nothing compared to the persecution you know, that the, those that laid the foundation suffered for the cause of truth and righteousness. And so I just, I, if anything, I just, I, I just feel compelled to, 
to just to bear testimony of, of what they did, because ultimately they made the ultimate sacrifice and, and, you know, being called names and being told I'm crazy and other accusations that come my way. I, I just think it's nothing compared to what Joseph Smith did, what Brigham Young did leading the saints across uncharted territory, you know, those that laid down their life. Um, the pluralize of Joseph Smith are being persecuted. Their names are being drugged through the mud right now. Um, they're being called liars and whores and, and things like that. And so it's nothing compared to what I feel like my forefathers and foremothers have done for me. So I, I count it as a privilege to stand in defense of their name and to stand up for their character. Well, look, we can edit this part out later if, if you want me to, but when you, when, when you and I first started to text, when I was asking you to come on and, and you recommended that I talk to some other folks and you told me what it was, you didn't give me details, but you told me what it was you were going through. I didn't want to say it over a text because it seemed too impersonal. But that sacrifice that, that you made will be accounted for, right? I mean, God, God has a way of, of rectifying all of that. History has a way of, of, you know, sorting out who was right and who was wrong. And I don't know you well, but I know enough to know that your character is beyond reproach when it comes to this stuff. Um, again, I can't thank you enough for what you've done to this point. Oh, I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> yeah, just definitely a thankless job. <laughs> oh, I right? imagine. So, you know, it, yeah. So, um, so just, just moving on, I, I think this is the, this is exciting part of the prophetic parallels of, of the martyrdom. So let's ask the question then was the death of Joseph and Hiram really a prophetic event? And in order to answer that, we're going to go to the book of Daniel because okay. the book of Daniel is a blueprint for the restoration. Yep. Right? And we know that because with the scripture about the stone cut out of the mountain and, and um, so Joseph, Joseph Smith actually said, he said, quote, I calculate to be one of the instruments of setting up the kingdom of Daniel by the word of the Lord. And I intend to lay the foundation, lay a foundation that will revol revolutionize the whole world. It's in history of the church, volume six, page 365. So again, he's telling us that the book of Daniel is basically a blueprint for the kingdom of God. And because he's saying I'm an instrument in setting up that kingdom from the kingdom of Daniel. Um, once when the prophet was preaching from Daniel chapter two, or excuse me, chapter four, verse two, no chapter two, verse four, he said the kingdom referred to was already set up and that he was the king over it. Wow. Right. So and tes testifying to Joseph's kingship in Israel with the council of 50. Right. And he's also telling us that he's the one fulfilling prophecy in Daniel. Right. Right. So, um, so the book of Daniel pinpoints the, the year of the martyrdom. It pinpoints 1844 as a prophetic event. So just a few generations ago, uh, an estimated 100,000 Christians expected Christ to return in 1844. In the 19th century, there was a, there was a man named William Miller, who was a contemporary of Joseph Smith. So he's, right? He's around the same time as Joseph Smith. He's, he was a Baptist from Western Vermont, same state as Joseph Smith. 
He moved to New York. He converted to the same, he converted during the same religious revivals that excited Joseph Smith. And then he began studying the Bible intensely. In 1831, after an extensive 14-year study of the Bible, William Miller calculated that the second coming of Jesus Christ would occur in 1844, and his conclusions were basically enlarged on the interpretations of the symbolic meaning of the prophecies in Daniel, especially Daniel um, chapter 8, verse 14. And um, I don't have my Bible in front of me. Let me just hear and, and Google it so I can read that to you. You're just fine. So now again, it's it's symbolic, this prophecy. So it it's um so I'll just read it to you. Um make sure I'm getting the right the, the right version. Okay, so Again, William, William Miller's prophecy about the second coming of Christ being 1844 is based on this scripture in Daniel. And he said unto to me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Okay, now, most people reading that, I'm going to say that has nothing to do with the martyrdom or Joseph Smith, right? Um, but again, it's symbolic. And it's a, it's a mathematical prophecy, right? Right. Because he's saying unto 2,300 days. Now we have to understand two things about this prophecy. Number one, it's a mathematical prophecy, similar to when Lehi said in 600 years, will Jesus Christ be born? Right. right. He's, he's actually giving exact date, right? He's saying, right. In six, so mathematical prophecy. Number two, you have to understand about this prophecy that is in Hebrew days means years. Right. Right. And we can go back and I can show you scripturally how that's true. And if you go back and read the story of when Joseph is actually, is it Joseph or Jacob with Leah and Rachel? I, I think that was Jacob. Yep. Jacob. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. So if you read the verse, when, when, you know, his father tells him you have to work for seven days and then it translated into seven years. It's an example of how you, it shows that the Hebrews understood days to mean years. That was just an example. You have to go back and read. So, okay. So again, it's a mathematical prophecy. Something is going to happen in 2,300 days, which in Hebrew is years. 2,300 years. Uh, and then the sanctuary will be cleansed. Okay. So William, William Miller knew something was going to happen, you know, from, and, and he goes back through, um, other chapters in Daniel where he pinpoints the starting point of that prophecy. And that's all been laid out by a man named John D. Nelson, who's actually a member of the church. He basically goes through all of the research of how he came, how this William Miller came up with um, scripturally um, from the book of Daniel, how he came up with a starting point. And I would just have to recommend people read that because it's, it's too comprehensive for me to um, go over in, in a podcast. Sure. But your estimation is it's rock solid though, right? Oh, it's rock solid. Like okay. you go, like it, you go through his math. You actually, you could find, you could actually it find it online. Um, if you just, there's a movie, there was a movie written about it. 
and they go through and they show the cal- how William Miller came out come up, came out with a, the calculations scripturally. It's rock so, solid. So he goes back and he, and he basically assigns a year to when um, Daniel makes that prophecy, right? Right, like a start. So he's like, okay, here's the starting point, and it and then the ending point of this two thousand whatever years ends in eighteen forty four. Okay. Okay. So, but it wasn't just William Miller. There were scores of other prominent Bible scholars around the world that agreed that Daniel's prophecy would find its fulfillment in the 1840s. So it wasn't just him. It was, like I said, hundreds around the world. This was a worldwide phenomenon. Right. At at this time. Um, a A Boston clergyman said, if these days are years, Meaning again, going back to that scripture, if these days are years, any schoolboy can see it. For if 490 terminated at the death of Christ, the 2,300 days would terminate in 1844, and the world must end unless it can be shown that some other event is to take place. I do not see how that can be done. So they've narrowed down 1844 is this pivotal year in human history. Right. And the only inference that he can, yes, prophetic, but the only inference he can make is that that is Christ's return. Because he's like, if it's not that it's something else, but I don't know what else it could be. Right. Because again, they don't have the advantage of the knowledge of the restoration. Okay. Yep. Yep. These are, these are Christians, right? They, they, they don't know, right. This is happening the same time that Joseph Smith is alive. Remember this is their contemporaries with Joseph Smith. Sure. Yep. So they haven't accepted, they, they haven't accepted or no one's preached to them of the restoration. So they don't know what, what other event could happen in 1844. We don't know. So they, they assume that it would be the return of Christ. It's a reasonable assumption. If you don't know what's going on with Joseph Smith and the restoration. Right. So again, so hundreds of Bible scholars are agreeing something prophetic is going to happen in 1844, but not everybody was in agreement about what would happen at that appointed time, but they knew it was an appointed time. And there was a professor of Hebrew. His name was George Bush. um, And he wrote, (laughs) whoever attacks Mr. Miller on his point of time attacks him on his strongest point. His time is right, but he is mistaken in the event to occur. So he's agreeing. This is a, a professor of Hebrew. He's like, you can't attack him on the year because that's his strongest point. It's just that he didn't agree that the prophetic event was the coming of Christ. Okay. So, but all these Bible scholars knew that something prophetic was going to take place in 1844. Okay. And unfortunately, history has shown <laughs> William Miller was mistaken in the event. And this led to what is called the great disappointment of 1844. I've heard of it. Yep. It, I, I encourage your um, audience to Google it. Um, Google it on YouTube. You'll find many talks about it. Uh, movies were, were, were made about it because it was, it was a worldwide phenomenon, right? It, you had, go ahead. I was going to say the Millerites, they became the seventh day Adventists, correct? Right. Okay. So, uh, so what happened was that obviously you had these thousands of Christians in 1844 waiting for the coming of Jesus Christ. And obviously that didn't happen. So he had first predicted that it would happen in the spring, 
And because he was following, you know, God's appointed times are always in the spring and the fall, right? Based right. on yep. the Jewish feast days. He, he always knew that God's appointed times, everything is fulfilled in the spring and in the fall, which is, is true for church history as well, right? Yep. Joseph Smith gets the plates in the fall and then other things were fulfilled in the spring, things like that. So he was basing it off that. He's like, okay, so, so first it was Jesus Christ is going to return in the spring of 1844. And then that didn't happen. And so they, they had to account for that. They said, okay, we must have just been wrong. It's going to happen in the fall. And, and of course th that didn't happen either. And that's what led. To, so you had all these Christians, right? Waiting in fields. They'd abandoned their homes, their, their flocks, their everything, their businesses waiting in the fields. And in October of 1844, they wake up the next day, Christ hadn't come, right? You heard, you know, cries in the street, you know, people were just disappointed and, um, but they never abandoned their faith that something prophetic happened. They just said something prophetic happened. We just don't know what it was. Hmm. And that led to the creation of the seventh day Adventists. And what's actually fascinating is that um, that Warren Miller wrote actually in a paper, in a newspaper on June 27th, 1844, the day of the martyrdom. Really? It's a, a newspaper called the Midnight Crier. So again, this was when they had predicted it, that the coming would happen in the spring. So now they're saying, okay, it didn't happen in the spring. It's going to happen in the fall. So they're still holding out hope. So to me, there's no coincidence that in June 27th, 1844, he writes, and I'll just do a quick quote. He says, true, we have made one mistake on the time. And even now we know not where the mistake lies. No one has yet been able to show where or in what respect we have erred unless God's word reveals the secret. True, our oppressors have told us and still tell us our calculations are wrong but as yet they have been unable to tell wherein lies the mistake. The conclusion is that the signs have all been seen. The point of time has been reached in which all divine numbers most harmoniously terminate. But the day and hour are wisely hid from mortals. Yet we are assured that this time of suspense will not be long, just long enough to humble our pride, to test our faith, love, and integrity, and to purify us and make us white. So he's saying, we still have hope that this prophecy is going to be fulfilled in 1844. And he wrote this in the midnight crier on June 27th, 1844, the day of the martyrdom. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. And so he, they, they still believed that even though they were greatly disappointed, they, they still had faith in, in the prophecy and they knew that something prophetic had happened. And, and, you know, it's just unfortunate that they didn't have the restoration or they would know what that event was. Right. But we do know what the event was. We do know what that prophetic event happened in 1844. Right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Saints, we know that Joseph, as Joseph Smith said, he sealed the covenant with his blood. The covenant is now in force. The sanctionary can now be cleansed right? Yeah, absolutely. He restored the kingdom of God on earth 
we know where to look for admission of sins. We have all the ordinance. The keys are the keys are here. That's yep. the yep. meaning of that uh, of that Bible verse. It's it's fascinating. I the the book that he wrote, John D. Nelson, is eighteen forty four in prophecy. If you can find a copy, you might be able to find it on Amazon. You know, it it's this sort of stuff that tells you God's not absent from what's happening. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like he's given witnesses everywhere. He gave a witness outside of Mormondom for people to look at, to find, maybe to lead other people to Mormondom. I don't know. I won't pretend right. to know his designs, but they're there. And right. it bears testimony of the fact he still loves his children and is still working with his children and still points to where to find the truth to find God's witnesses. Exactly. So, so we know that these Christian scholars, they failed to recognize Joseph Smith as the true prophet, but their studies serve to illuminate Joseph Smith's role in prophecy, particularly his death. And so, because William Miller said something prophetic was going to happen in 1844. And that was an appointed time. Right. And I think that in a divine nod to Daniel's 1844 prophecy, the Lord tells Joseph Smith in Liberty jail, he says, quote, thy days are known and thy years shall not be numbered less. Jeez. So he's saying your death is known. Your days are numbered. There's an appointed time for you to die. Um, yeah. So I think it's just, pretty significant. Um, so even down to the date of his death, Joseph Smith is known in scriptural prophecy. Um, from, and I really like this quote from Joseph. I think it's from Joseph Fielding Smith. He's just an outstanding scholar. He he's done remarkable work on the prophecies of Joseph Smith. And he says from the days of Adam, father Adam to the last prophecy of dispensations past have come a mighty flood of prophecy, which like a strong band have surrounded the prophet Joseph Smith dictating the great work that he would do such decrees had to be fulfilled to the very letter. And so it has been more prophecy was fulfilled in the lifetime of Joseph Smith than had ever than had been for nearly 2000 years before. That's a sweeping statement, but a true statement. I mean, we, we can see it, right? I mean, you don't have to look hard. It's there, right? It's there. It, it, just thinking about from ancient Jewish tradition to Millerites to scripture, it all testifies of Joe. There's portions there that testify of Joseph's prophetic calling, his mission, and even his sacrifice. Right. And just one other important this is just too coincidental to be a coincidence. So like we said, so from the Millerite movement, we started the seventh day Adventists, and they're one of the largest Christian dominations in the world. Mm-hmm. And so modern day Christian um, or seventh day Adventists have actually revisited Daniel's prophecy. And again, cause again, they still hold true that something prophetic happened in 1844. They've never abandoned that. Right. And they, so they've now linked it to the martyrdom's prophecy in revelation and in John. So they're saying that there's a connection between the 1844 prophecy and Daniel, 
with the martyrdom's prophecy in in revelation and in the book of um john in the new testament the, so, the mar martyrdom revelation about the two witnesses is that the one you're uh -huh. speaking of yep yes. yep and so i and, and so again they're missing the event because they don't have the advantage of the restoration but we do so um you know i would i also do want to recommend it for for your listeners so the joseph smith foundation actually did do a documentary called the mystery of the two prophets where they also go in and, and make the parallel between the deaths of joseph and hiram with prophecies of the two prophets in revelation 11 it's phenomenal like it just amazing it, backed up by not only scripture but prophetic quotes and wow. you just i would recommend that to again to understand unless you understand the prophecies surrounding the deaths of the prophet Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram, we can never understand the significance of the martyrdom and why it matters so much. Absolutely. I'm going to, uh, well, first, let me ask you this. Is there any other points you wanted to bring up? that's, I mean, I, there, I could talk about this forever, but that, that those are my main points. Okay. I want to wrap up here with bearing my testimony, and then I'm going to turn, turn it over to you to have the final word here, Kimberly. We look at the martyrdom and we look at the life of Joseph Smith and as Mormons, we rightfully are thankful. We are rightfully, um, in gratitude and hold Joseph Smith in esteem. But as a convert to Mormonism, there have been times when I have either been studying the scriptures or reading about the life of Joseph Smith or in prayer where I am told that Joseph's role not only in the dispensation, but within the effort for salvation and exaltation of the human family is so pivotal that we sometimes don't do it justice. That we, we fail to, to, to recognize just how central his prophetic role and even his sacrifice was. And I firmly believe that once we can put Joseph in his proper role, it can't help but lead us back to our Savior and to our Heavenly Father. And so I just want to bear testimony that I know he was a prophet. He was the prophet amongst prophets. He was everything you could hope a prophet would be. And in due time, I firmly believe we'll see just how important he was. And I would admonish anybody Go do your own research on Joseph Smith. Don't take my word for it. You go do your own research and come up with your idea of who the man was. Because even Joseph alludes to the fact, as, as, you, as you read that quote from him, I think very few understand who he really was. But I think that can, can still be had even today. I just want everyone to know that I know Joseph was a true prophet and is this dispensation head. And I want to say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. 
And just to add a second witness to what you said, I, I just want to quote from Doctrine and Covenant section 21. This was a revelation given to Joseph Smith on the day the church was organized. And Jesus Christ said, um, he said, wherefore, meaning the church, thou shalt give heed unto all his words, speaking of Joseph, and commandments, which he shall give unto you as he receiveth them, walking in all holiness before me. For his word ye shall receive as if from mine own mouth in all patience and faith. And then Jesus Christ says, for by doing these things, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. Yea, and the Lord God will disperse the power of darkness from before you and cause the heavens to shake for your good and his name's glory. And so I just, that's the promise, right? You, the gates of hell will not prevail against you if you give heed to the words of the prophet of this dispensation, the servant of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said, this generation will have my word through you. So we want to come to know Jesus Christ. We study the life and the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, and we give heed to his words and keep his commandments. And, and I, in my life, that has been true. I feel like I have gained my test, my own testimony and witness of Jesus Christ through Joseph Smith. And I testify that Joseph Smith's life does testify of Jesus Christ in every way, including his death. Amen. Beautiful. Well, Kimberly, we've done three and a half hours. That was awesome. Um, in all seriousness, I would love to have you back on when Sam publishes his paper. Would you be willing to come back on? Absolutely. Yep. All right. Perfect. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. Bye, everybody. <laughs>